金，向上接着金线链的三十，二岁的张合当巧，驸马郎和金将王和苗三块，二岁的张合当巧，金钱含金，向上接着金线链的三十，二岁的张合当巧，驸马郎和金将王和苗三块，二岁的张合当巧。Welcome to Gavin's Open. I got a good guest, uh, Warren McGrew, on tonight to talk about our favorite subject, cringy Calvinists. Welcome <laughs> to the show, Warren. Hey, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, so tell me about this shirt. You got like a John Calvin shirt on. I do. You know? it's, a, it's an Idol Killer original. It's from the, it's from the uh, fall collection uh, of, our, of our Teespring store. But it's, um, it's a dead uh, John Calvin and uh, it's got a passage on there. And then on the back, uh, I'm not going to show you my backside. I don't, I don't want our sales uh, to, to go too high here. But it just says, uh, flee idolatry. And so there's this tendency where we worship dead men with beards and there's, you know, stuffy, uh, moldy smelling writings that are on books that everybody claims they've read, but very few people have. So uh, it's just a I thought it was appropriate for tonight's topic. Fantastic. And uh, of course, tonight it's a cringe cab and uh, starring Vocab Malone. Now, I've had some dealings in the past with him, but to be honest, he's very forgettable. And so it's it's not like I'm coming into this with any like biases. And so I don't have a measure of him as a man. I just know he likes like rapping or something like that i have uh, no he's idea a, he's kind of an urban street apologist who who is definitely in the reformed camp um i don't i don't know a whole lot about him um beyond beyond that it's we, you know we kind of travel in different circles and and whatnot he um he, he kind of leans more towards the um the reform particularly calvinism yeah so i'm going to put him up on uh on the screen there there he is he's on the left and uh Tiny face Steve Anderson, Tyler Vela is on the right. So I look at Steve Anderson, and uh, he's a good-looking guy. He works out and stuff. And then I see Tyler Vela. It's like his face and eyes and stuff is squished in like a squished-in tiny face Steve Anderson is what's going on there. But Steve Anderson's great. He's an anti-Calvinist, and he preaches some fiery sermons against, against Calvinism. I actually got a clip of his pulled up for later. Perhaps because of what I suspect is in this based. I haven't actually watched this. I'm going to be honest. I haven't watched to see what this cringy it's it, you just know it's going to be cringe just by the names of the people in it. I watched I watched about I want to say 15 minutes, 20 minutes into this thing and um, the amount of misrepresentation and just flat out. I, I, I see it as dishonesty because he's been corrected repeatedly on this. Uh, it was so abundant that I just said, well, gosh, if I'm going to watch this, uh, I need to do something <laughs> with it. And then and then you posted you were doing it. And I said, well, hey, I'll, I'll be the lazy one here. I'll let Chris orchestrate the whole thing and I'll just uh, I'll do the MSTK 3000 uh, chat alongside you. Yeah, jump on in. So I fast forward because every time you go into a podcast, like the first couple of minutes is just like uh, you could just kind of skip it. And so we're going to skip forward a couple minutes and see what they have to say. Of course, they're talking about open theism, uh, open theism, that damnable heresy in which uh, if you believe the Bible, if the, if the Bible says something like God repents and you're like, oh, I, I think God might repent straight to hell. Don't pass go. 
How dare you? How dare you believe God's self-revelation in Scripture might have some literal applications? It is you, so funny. You, you are so, such a bad person. Oh, but uh, you have to have these super secret special goggles to read the Bible, or else you go to hell. And that's that's actually that's really funny. Someone posted on I think it was Sotirology One Hundred One, where they're like. Um, Pelagianism is Gnosticism, or or uh, provisionalism is Gnosticism. It's like Gnosticism. It comes from the word Gnostic to know, and the idea behind Gnosticism was secret knowledge given to the elect that's not generally available to the wider public, which gave them some sort of enlightenment for a salvation type experience, an ascension type experience, and so that's literally what Calvinists believe. That's what they teach that. You can only read the Bible if you have this spiritual enlightening. And they point to a couple passages by Paul and they teach this. And so like Calvinism is literally Gnosticism. That it, it lines up to what Gnosticism teaches and preaches. And provisionalism is the exact opposite, that God provides a way for all people and not just a special elect for salvation. And so th well, these people are just off their rockers. Not only, not only does it rely on divine gnosis, but it relies on gaslighting because it says the reason you can't understand my position and my position looks self-defeating, illogical, unreasonable, contradictory, uh, laughable is because you have not been regenerated. And if you were, then you could see this divine gnosis. You'd have this divine gnosis and you could see scripture as it was revealed to me by this spiritual downloading of of knowledge given to me by god and so it, it's divine gnosis coupled with gaslighting um and they've, they've they not only gaslight others but they've gaslit themselves this is the the sad thing because they eventually start to believe that their interpretation is the divine interpretation that has been given to them by god um it's 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 very man-centered yeah, so I don't know if you've ever read The Secret Gospel of Judas. This is a Gnostic text which was discovered, which paints Judas as Jesus's one true disciple. And the idea is that he had this special knowledge of Jesus's real mission that was given directly to him. He had that spiritual enlightening. Just It reminds me of Calvinism. That's, that's what they're teaching. These other people are very superficial thinkers and they are taking things that Jesus says at face value. They don't understand the deeper insights. But Judas, his true disciple, does. Yep, but. a lot of similarities. All right, I'm going to go hit play, and we'll see what we got here. On that, so look forward to that. And then, uh, and then I also co-host a. Uh, I was I just finished an episode just before this. Uh, I co-host a uh, a YouTube channel called Sage Stage. Um, which is dedicated to, you know, ironic conversations among uh, Christian brothers of different theological uh, persuasions. So nice. Uh, yeah. Nice. And uh, you're a guy that when I have a question, you're uh, let's see if we can't get it any louder. Oh, this is man. about as loud as it gets. Is it okay with you? Stuck in LA traffic. I can hear it enough. Yeah, I can hear it enough. Okay. So he said, you're a guy that when I have a question to answer, I give you a call. <laughs> okay. Uh, imagine you're living life and you got a question about life and then you query Tyler Vela on it. That is, that's uh, unintentional humor to me. Trying, it's real fun. Trying to find truth there would be like swimming through a sewer in search of a good donut. It just doesn't, 
the you, mo- you may find it, but I don't know it'll be worth the effort. The, the most intellectually dishonest person, like it, ex- I, I, maybe it's it really could be. I've been reading these books lately. There's a Charles uh, Charles Murray book about the state of education in the U.S. and uh, he talks about things like the fact that 10% of the U.S. population can maintain B averages and above in college, which is that's a that it's it's very shocking statistic that that's the state of intellect. And so maybe Tyler Vela, he's just he's trying his hardest. He can't he's not actually intellectually dishonest. He's trying his darndest and failing. It could be the case. I don't think I don't think I don't think Tyler is is uh I, I give him credit for being far more intelligent. So I, I tend to think that his misrepresentation is intentional. Um, I don't, I, I don't want to insult his intelligence. I think yeah, so that, that's the gracious issue. thing. Yeah. I think it's more a character issue. The gracious, the gracious reading is he's just a bad human being. The ungracious reading is that he's dumb. <laughs> it, it's not, it's not a good uh, set of options here. <laughs> oh, oh. We usually have time to talk. Yep. That's kind of how that works. That's my, that's my commute. I spent about three hours a day in the car to and from, so. Yeah. Oh my goodness. My that's why people are well anyways. All right. Well, I'm glad to have you on today. And uh we're gonna be discussing open theism. It's an apologetics issue. Obviously, it's a theological issue, it's a biblical issue, it's a Christian issue. What is open theism? We've done some shows on it before, but what's your working definition? Yeah, open theism is effectively the concept um that the, the future is not settled even for God. So God does not have, um, uh, God does not have knowledge uh, of the future um, because the future is not yet uh, determined yet. So um, he, he learns what's happening as it's happening, just like the rest of us. Uh, so uh, I, I think there's good elements to that definition and then bad elements. Yeah. The good element is that he started to include God in this because he's he's probably been taken to task quite a few times about his definition applying it just to man and uh, like Will Duffy probably in their interaction said no this is about God can God add one raindrop to one storm and Matt Slick in the debates like I don't know what you mean by that question <laughs> <laughs> and he asked him like uh, five or six times and Matt Slick's like I don't know what that question means he's like my kid can answer this question can you answer this question it's like can you just tell us what you believe I mean uh, uh, what you believe it might sound bad but uh, you believe it right just just be honest and uh Tyler Vela, he's he's an interesting guy. I think someone posted an interaction with him just the other day, and they blotted out his name or something like that. But his interaction was, he's calling out open theists for the raindrop analogy or something like that. Can God make one more raindrop that he never before thought of the possibility to add to the storm or something like that? Or create a new butterfly the, the, that he never before the question, thought of? The heart of the question is, is God truly creative? Is God truly innovative? Is God the creator and innovative? Or is he fated to bring about a decree he never actually decreed? And so, yeah, he was right to start here with God because the issue for my concern, I'm sure with yours as well, is whether or not God is truly free or is he eternally fated by a decree he never issued, determinations he never determined. 
And, uh, and so we're going to get more into that, I'm sure. But starting with God is the central thesis, you know, for the position I hold, which is dynamic omniscience. And that's that you can't have power absent energy. You can't have um, a living God absent any form of activity. You know, God throughout scripture is defined as the living and active God. And dynamic just means active and energetic, um, which in this, in this and literally every other criticism Vela brings against dynamic omniscience, he treats dynamic as synonymous with not. So he, he says that we redefine omniscient, which we don't, <laughs> but he's literally redefining dynamic. So dynamic means active and energetic. So actively and energetically knowing all that's logically possible to know, my view, right? Or he's going to say uh, God is static. He's frozen. He lacks this sort of activity. And so he's going to see dynamic and just translate it as not. So you'll see him go, God is dynamically Trinitarian. He's not <laughs> triune. It's like, no, God is actively and energetically triune. Like he's the living God. Oh, God is dynamically omnipotent. So he's not omnipotent. No, no, no. He's actively and energetically omnipotent. He's exercising his power freely. But uh, it's funny to see the spin that they put on this because they'll call us out for doing exactly what they're doing. They're just projecting. Yeah, so I, I would quibble with you just a little bit. My primary concern always on the podcast is what kind of God does the Bible teach? Yeah, and then exactly. the, the second question is, is that accurate of reality? Is that the true God? So it could be the case that the Bible teaches open theism and open theism is false and Tyler Vale is right because uh, Calvinism is mutually exclusive with the Bible. Uh, they don't go together. A, a God throughout the Bible is defined as the living and active God. And you see his character and personality on every page of the Bible and how he interacts with people and creates relationships and becomes frustrated, becomes angry, and his emotions are very much part of his character. And all these things are just, just denied to God on the face value by these Calvinists. And so uh, if, if the Bible's true, I think Tyler Vela is going to be in a world of hurt uh, on Judgment Day. It, it could be the case. But uh, we'll, we'll hit play and see what they say there. All right. Sorry, everyone. My dog is, uh, I don't know what has gotten into her, but uh, <laughs> jumping up here a lot more than usual. She's uh, very, so very, very eager to take a, a bite out of your bottle. Open theism herself. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what it is. Well played. Train, train her well. Yeah, exactly. So, um, like I said, we've covered it a few times, and um, one of the open theist guys, he, who's the guy who likes to drink a lot when he does a show? Oh, I don't know. Uh, I forgot. I think it's Chris something, but he's always like drinking. Chris, Chris Fisher. I think that's him. Yeah. He's usually drinking when he talks, or a lot of times, right? I don't know. I, I, I yeah. I'm, anyway, I'm sure. so he did a review of it and all of that, you know, and, uh, and, uh, some okay. So that, that's good. Uh, apparently I'm known for drinking while I talk. I think I've done it like twice or three times on the show. I did it once when I was in a big discussion with, uh, I don't know. I was just on someone else's podcast and it kind of got t pretty tedious. And so I grabbed a bottle next to me and I just started, uh, drinking and uh, apparently no one on earth can hold their liquor because they're all like 
that's a lot of alcohol. He must be wasted. It's like, I don't know. Maybe, maybe we have different physiologies. Um, and then the second time was when that uh, CJ tried to kill me because we turned his, his uh, video into a drinking game. And every time he made a logical fallacy, he made some sort of uh, appeal to emotion, uh, I would take a shot. And that guy tried to kill me uh, through alcohol poisoning. But, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know any other times off the top of my head, but I'm sure there at least exists one more. So, like, three times in the course of, like, 300 to 400 episodes, I'm known for drinking. So that's good. But I, I do have pulled up a pastor who I love dearly, and his name is Steven Anderson. And, <laughs> and his take on alcohol, which is fantastic. I'm going to go ahead and play that for us because it's too good not to. It's for losers. It's not for princes. It's not for kings. It's not for God's people. It's for losers. Yeah. And let me tell you something. If you drink, you're a loser. There, I said it. You're a loser. Good. Drink. If you have to drink to have a good time, I say you're a loser. Yeah. I don't want to be around you because you, you're boring. You're boring and stupid. I want to hang around with somebody who's interesting to be around. Because if you have to get drunk to have fun, it shows that you don't know how to have fun. And the most simple-minded, imbecilic, stupid people who have nothing to live for, they don't know the Bible, they don't want to talk about Genesis, they don't want to talk about Exodus, they don't want to talk about Leviticus, they don't want to talk about family, they don't want to talk about righteousness and godliness and peace, they want to say stupid things and they have to get drunk so they can forget how stupid they are. They have to get drunk so they can forget how ugly they are and how ugly their spouse is and how ugly their friends are and how they all get up and sing karaoke and they all sound like garbage. Oh, oh, oh I love Steven Anderson so much. Um, all, all, of his, all of his video clips are fantastic. Uh, he was uh, investigated by the FBI when he prayed an impeccatory prayer against... Uh, Barack Obama. I don't know yeah, if you remember that. Yeah, I remember that. He said, God, break break Obama's uh, teeth in his mouth. And then, like, the FBI shows up to try to investigate and intimidate him. Oh, it's so fantastic. But I love Steven Anderson dearly. But he probably doesn't like me in return. But that's okay. Uh, he's got some pretty good takes. Anti-Calvinist. But that is who we have to compare to Vela. I think Steven Anderson's a very smart guy. If you talk to Steven Anderson, I've seen videos where people try to ambush him on the streets. And Steven Anderson reads the Bible like multiple times a year. And so they'll they'll try to quibble with him about his theology. But Steven Anderson understands the use of language, the use of prepositional phrases, and he disarms the people who are trying to confront him very vocally and expertly. I don't agree with Steven Anderson. But he uses his conventions of language to make a lot of his points. He understands how language works and functions, which it doesn't go very well for the people who confront him. Unlike Vela, who t tends to just attack characters and personalities and well, things like that. It's interesting, too, because within the Reformed camp, you've got like this group that's very much against drinking, smoking, tattooing. And then you've got like the Apologia crowd who are the embodiment of those things. So it's really interesting that that he's calling you out for that. I wonder if he's going to be as consistent in going after the Apologia group, you know, with his criticism. Yeah, so it, it's, it is all funny that Jesus was accused of being a drunkard because Jesus drank a lot. It's, it's, it, it's, it's, you can't get around it. You can't just say, oh, they were just making these things up. No, John the Baptist, he didn't eat or drink. 
and uh, people made fun of him and called him names. Jesus came eating and drinking and was called a glutton and a drunk. It's not like Jesus was like drunk, but he drank enough alcohol so that these rumors had some sort of basis in truth. And so these guys calling me drunk, uh, maybe, maybe I'm a, uh, maybe I should get one of those. What would Jesus do bracelets? Because I'm emulating Christ in this manner. <clears throat> but uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm glad that I'm known as the drinker, apparently. Stuff in the comments in there. So um, I've talked about, I did some book reviews of books that, that uh, help people have resources about how to properly deal with it before. But you've put out some great stuff yourself and in, in some great debates you've done. And so you're really current on the kind of the current lay of the land. And that's what I really want people to see. Is... Remember when uh, William Blake Craig debated James White and all the Calvinists were in the comments saying, James White totally wiped the floor with them. It's like they're hallucinating. It's like, did we watch the same debate? James White has won some debates against Molinus. He won the Tim Stratton one. I admit it. He did not win the William Blake Craig one. He was yeah. just. He was made to look very foolish, uh, and he, his his frustration showed. And the Calvinists are in such a delusional bubble; they're all in the comments saying that he won the debate. It's like there, there's there's not an objective third party account that we're getting when when these guys uh, laud each other's praises. If our position was that God was unthinking, we would be blasted. Oh, you're you're saying God is ignorant. You're you're saying that he's he's stupid. You're saying all these. But when it's their position that God is unthinking, oh, that's that's a brilliant comment, brother. Amen. <laughs> it's, it's it is it is uh, it is it is I think a case of, of cognitive bias and and a little bit of dissonance there. Yeah, so I I, th I think that actually works fairly well for us because the more they engage in clownish behavior like this, the more that normal people can kind of see through this. It, they 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 kind of get red pilled when they see these things happen. And the disconnect between what the Calvinist says happens and what happens in reality, and so I, I think I think these things do help us. Uh, the current state of open theism, because when I first heard about it, as far as really an issue, it was guys like um, I believe John Sanders, I believe, yeah. and some of the, the the guys of that generation. Well, you know. Uh, there's like a whole new crop of internet guys running around and you're the one you're one of the people who's dealing with them a lot with he deal he deals with them by blocking them and then unblocking them and then reblocking them that he is deals what he with does them by by saying he believes god is unthinking he calls the god of scripture a hebraic mega zeus um yeah he he deals with us but i would not say skillfully or artfully or in light of the actual merits of the of the text of scripture he just comes in and completely misrepresents, and then and then runs, and uh, and then persists in doing nothing but memes. So it's it's it's, it's definitely um, uh, he, he's pitching uh, pitching pretty pretty softballs here. Yeah. So that the one funny thing that I've noticed is that when you answer people with the Bible and then challenge them on their Christianity, they kind of shut down. There, there's a thread. I think it's currently on God is Open, in which a guy asks how God can know what we need before we pray it. And some people come in with these long philosophical definitions and explanations, and then you see him going back and forth with these people, trying to argue against it. But when I came in, I said, well, Paul tells us in Romans 8 
that the Spirit searches us and then communicates that information to God the Father, and that's how God the Father knows what we need before we ask. There's he didn't want to interact with that one because because it's so funny. It's it's like a scripturally based. Well, here's what the Bible says. So then if he's arguing against it, he's arguing against what Paul says. It's like you don't have to be a Christian. And I say that to Calvinists often. You don't have to, you know, if if the Bible teaches a Hebraic Megazeus, you don't have to be a Christian. You could go join Platonism or something, and they don't have a response because it's a moralistic fallacy, is what it is, and it's poisoning the well. And so he's trying to use an emotional, some sort of emotional kick in the audience, a kind of uh poisoning the well is when you portray the opponent as someone bad oh that person um he's 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 like hitler hitler built infrastructure and so anyone building roads is like hitler something like that oh hitler liked animals and so if you like animals you're like hitler poisoning the well just trying to say my opponent's a bad person and their beliefs are bad therefore you shouldn't interact with them and that's vocab malone actually has this guy on vela because Vocab Malone didn't want to actually bring an open theist on because he doesn't want to platform them. Have, yeah. have you have you noticed this in, in common society, maybe in the political realm, where people don't want to platform certain individuals? Oh yeah, I mean it, it's 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 radical the uh, radical leftism here of of the uh, of the religious world where he's like I don't want to actually allow you to articulate your views and and then I have to be forced to interact with those and respond to challenges of my own and we can have a healthy back and forth and exchange no 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 I don't want to platform you um, right and this is this is why a certain calvinist agreed to debate me on the matter and then <laughs> ran for the hills uh saying that I denied Christ um you know so uh, there, there's there's this fear of actually engaging and having to defend their views and have them challenged and and they've so they've so heavily associated Calvinism, theistic determinism, Neoplatonism as the means of their salvation. That when it's challenged, they think that you're challenging God Himself, not just this philosophical understanding that men have created of Him, and they're incapable or unwilling to try and distinguish between the two. They just have this philosophical construct. They go, well, if this, is, if this isn't true, then God doesn't exist. And it's like, well, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. You're making some leaps of logic here. You need to start connecting the dots. But it, it's this fear. <laughs> I don't think they really trust God enough with the tough questions. I'm speaking generally, not necessarily vocab. I don't know vocab that well. But yeah, so they, they trust God enough with some of the tough questions. Yeah, so you see a current currently in current day, Twitter has threatened to oh no, allow free speech, any speech that's legal is allowed, and the people who would censor their opponents are freaking out. The reason why is because when information is free and it flows, uh, things tend to tend to drift towards truth. You know, Robert Conquest has his rules that any organization, not specifically a right organization, will drift left. Well, the reverse and opposite is true that in any unregulated space, uh, conversation and ideology will drift right. When things aren't, things have to be controlled to stop the drift towards what is true and accurate. And so that's why these people, they don't want to platform views that are persuasive, that counter their narrative. They don't want their audience to actually see an accurate representation. They don't want their audience 
to to understand what their opponents actually believe, the counter arguments that their argue that their opponents make, because guess what, their audience is easily captured by these ideas once they see how much sense they make and what kind of data is out there to support the counter narrative that they would like to present. They have to control the narrative. So how has it metamorphosized, transformed currently to where we see versions of open theism today? Yeah, so uh, like most things, the online version is worse than the academic Chris. version. Um, right. So you know, you're- Yes. Notice the, the framing here. Open theism is transforming, it's metamorphosizing, it's, it's evolving, it's like shifting sand, it's, it's, it's not historic, it's not consistent. Unlike Reformed theology, <laughs> right? Like, you see how they're framing it? Like, like this, this is a, a new and, and shifting view and like, we should fear this and you need to come to the, the secure safety of Reformed theology where we never question or reform or, or challenge. And it's like, uh, you know, are you not familiar with the disagreements among the reformers? Like, um, yeah, anytime I quote Calvin, people say Calvin doesn't represent Calvinists. I'm like, oh, hey, what's going on here? Uh, and so, yeah, so there's hypocrisy in this. And there's, there's also an element of truth in that I think open theism has widely diverged from the openness of God book, which was kind of revolutionary. Uh, different arguments and ideas, concepts and approaches and strategies have been initiated since that book. And so, and you got people like John Sanders, who's kind of turning back against some of the things that were written in the book, where I think it'd be better for him to double down on some of those things. And so I've been doing a lot of work on early Christianity and early, early pagan and Jewish interaction from from the beginning of the Bible through Augustine, basically. And so my contention is that there is a gradual Hellenization and incorporation of Platonistic elements that we could see clearly in the data that's available. And John Sanders is trying to pull back against that thesis and trying to say, yeah, it's, it's more hybrid. It's, it's, it's something that we shouldn't... We shouldn't uh, press this point too hard but i think john sanders has some he has some presuppositions that he wants to maintain about god that fit a negative theology his perception of god is is more abstract than i think the actual biblical picture is and so his his new thing is we should be happy that Christianity's less Hellenized than we think because that means we're closer to classical traditions. Mm. I'm not sure if you're aware of that. In his, in Thomas Ord's latest uh, roundtable, when we're doing all those book reviews and things like that, uh, John Sanders made these points, and then he pointed to a book. Uh, I, I don't have it next to me. It's it's by my nightstand. It's it's only available in hard copy but I'm reading it, and basically that contention is that opotheists exaggerate this, which I actually don't think is the case. And and I, I will try to, in the future, show that we underemphasize that case. And so they, they are kind of right that the open theists are 
broadening our approach towards dealing with these guys. None, none of the people in openness of God talked about the attributes such as ineffability, simplicity, uh, maybe some timelessness they talked about, but they didn't talk about maybe some impassibility, maybe some immutability. But a lot of the negative attributes were overshadowed by the one attribute of omniscience. And even that within the openness of God was not classically set up so that people could accurately understand what these people believe when they affirm classical omniscience, such as that this knowledge is innate, ungenerated, that this is timeless, exhaustive, that it's non-falsifiable type of knowledge. All, all these all these things that open theists are now becoming aware of, like, for example, when you were trying to deal with Tyler Vela and uh, this other Calvinist dude saying, does God think? Can God process information? They've never heard these questions before, these Calvinists. They've never been called to task on these things, yeah. and they don't know what to do, and it's fantastic. Well, they name call and run away. Like uh, <laughs> that's, that's working for now, and they refuse to engage or platform you, so they'll, they'll name call and run away. Yeah, fantastic. I'm going to go ahead and put play. Reading Sanders or Hasker or Rhoda or mm -hmm. some of the other more academic open theists, they're not going to go to the excesses and kind of exotic views of, um, you know, Chris Fishers and Will Duffy and Warren McGrews and um, exotic. That's that's a good description. Ex a good description. Exotic. We're exotic. I can live with that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, to a lesser extent, uh, Drew. Uh, I can't uh -oh. remember his name. One of the uh -oh. perspective yeah, Drew, guys. You're, you're um, slacking. It's Vela. They're, they're going to be. They're they're going to try to ground themselves uh, a little bit more in the philosophical aspect. They don't really venture into the biblical components of it. Um, what the online guys are doing is trying to, you know, kind of. I, I think try to synthesize that a little bit more uh, with a biblical theological approach. Um, they just do it extremely poorly, um, and uh, and they're they're somewhat. Um, uh, I think I think their fundamental commitment to a very very strong view of libertarian freedom uh, is kind of the control the controlling condition for all Which of the other. Which Tyler denies kind of God is genuinely free. So Tyler, that, in past in past discussions, he said God is he, he denies God even has libertarian freedom. Um, so of course we as imagers would lack that if God lacks it. But these are the dirty little secrets they keep in their closet. God isn't free. God is unthinking, God is inactive, but yet pure actuality, A, but not A. And uh, and, and don't look over here because they're heretics and, and you need to be afraid of them. Just toe the party line. There is a little bit of gaslighting too. He said that they have this ideological commitment to libertarian free will. There's a thread on God is Open where a guy says, oh, how can God know these things about the future? And one guy says, well, he could override their free will and make these things happen. And the guy is shocked. Because, yeah, that is a legitimate open theistic belief that God could could hijack people and make them do things. And it, it's and the guy was shocked because he's been told through all these people uh, who like to build something that they can attack, that it's just this commitment. We, we really care about libertarian free will, so that's what motivationally drives us. I, I don't care about libertarian free will. I don't. Again, it's a historical question for me. Uh, who who who's depicted in the Bible? Which God is this? And then is that God accurate of reality? Who is God? 
I, it doesn't matter who, who people are and can can man override man's free will I, I often use the example yeah conceivably i can make a army of nanobots to inhabit your body and force you to do things that doesn't mean i it's it's not critical yeah no, I, I agree. so they arrive at some rather strange uh views to say the least how many uh, debates have you done with open theists online uh I, I i've done a lot of text debates uh, i've done I, I did Facebook back and forth. I said a sentence, and then they said a sentence back, and then I blocked them. <laughs> Two formal debates. So I formally debated uh, Will Duffy uh, on the gospel truth, uh, and then I debated Ward McGrew on uh, Chris Featherstone's uh, channel. Uh, I forget the name of the channel. Um, Dr. Chris uh, Featherstone. Uh, yeah. Yep. <laughs> that, that, that's when that's, – I think that's when you asked him, does God think that he had like this uh, – this fit, this internal like, in the headlights. yeah, it was deer in the <laughs> headlights. Like, he's like, I don't believe God thinks, and I'm, I'm I'm trying to be gracious. One of the things I need to get in my debates is more teeth. I'm 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 too nice of a guy, I think. So I, I you know I, I'm I'm trying to give him an out because I want to make sure that I'm not misrepresenting him. And a lot of people in the comments were like, oh, you know, Warren didn't have an answer, and I was like, I had a really strong one. I just. I feel bad pointing out just how wrong the guy is. And I was hoping maybe he was misspeaking, but no. Yeah. So you're, you're giving him the benefit of the doubt that he's a smart guy. He's just intellectually bankrupt and a bad person. Yeah. You should probably let those teeth show. It's, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's interesting that he, uh, he purposely obfuscates in the, in the screenshots that I was talking about where his name's crossed off. Um, someone says, hey, does God think? And he says, oh, are you asking if God has all knowledge in his head? And the guy responds, in what dictionary is having a bunch of knowledge the same thing as thinking? Yeah, I, I don't... They see God as an encyclopedia. So would you say the encyclopedia thinks? It, imagine imagine a, a, a platonic cyclopedia that contains the sum of all knowledge that ever exists, that anything will ever be, will be, and it's in the pages of this thing. Would you call that encyclopedia omniscient? Would you call it thinking? Yeah, yeah absolutely not. Absolutely uh, not. And he's terrified of this question. They don't, they have a problem just saying They don't believe, that, at the heart of their argument, they don't believe in a living God. They don't believe in a holy God. They believe in an unthinking fate machine that brings about all evil. And so when you start to press down on like the real heart of the matter, which is the biblical character of God, they shut down. Yeah. And so I, I've pointed out in the past that in Calvinism, God is no different than a mechanic of the universe. He, do, he doesn't have to exist. The, the, the universe works in, in this mechanistic way in which God is indistinguishable from non-existence. And that is actually one of one of their attributes of God, that God is ineffable, that you can't actually distinguish him from non-existence. You can't say anything positively about him. And so it's it's built in classical theism that God is indistinguishable from nothingness. If anybody also, he had vision, uh, vision or whatever, yeah. Yeah, so uh, I've, I've done those two formal debates. Um, but I've had lot, lots and lots of interactions. They're just, they're just talking about, I'm, I'm going to skip forward a little bit. Uh, that, that's classical theism. The non-classical theist comes along, and, and, and typically because they reject simplicity. 
Okay, I'm gonna. Uh, just, they also I, start rejecting impasse. I want him to tell us about classical theism, so I'm gonna back up a little bit. Uh, and that includes things like um, uh, accidental properties. Um, and is historically uh, is the historical orthodox view. It's really well defined in Aquinas and, and going forward. But that's the view that God is, you know, all the omni attributes, but also that He is immutable. Right? He's unchanging His nature. Um, he's a say, or he has a saity, right? He's mm -hmm. he's he is non-contingent in any way upon any Yeah, so that aseity includes no potentiality. And so uh, even Doezel in his book, he admits that he doesn't know how a god with no potentiality can create a world with potentiality. They they appeal to mystery. But but the idea is this that God can't be anything other than what he is in, in no way. And so God can't be in time because that time involves change and it, it involves befores and afters, and that will create distinctions within the Godhead and that creates change and all change, all potentiality has to be kicked out of, out of the room. God has to be outside of time in this singularity in which he doesn't change, doesn't emote doesn't have thoughts doesn't have relationships with the world he's totally non-contingent they'll take paul's words where god's in need of nothing and they'll say oh this this is a metaphysical property of god in which god can't have reliances on the world in any respect god can't gain joy from interacting with us in calvinism creation doesn't give god joy or give god any benefit Creation just reflects God's greatest glory. So it's not like God is gaining from the world. God is not enjoying the world. God doesn't have those types of dependencies on the world. And so this this is very sad theology. It's not biblical theology. It's the opposite of biblical theology. In the Bible, God sings over us. Yeah, theirs is a God that's utterly removed and detached, not one that's engaged, caring, leading, directing, rebuking, judging, chastising, all of those things which the Bible says they would dismiss as analogical, anthropomorphic, metaphor, lacking any tangible one-to-one -one meaning. Yeah, so Petro, he says, why even call that a god if it can't do anything? That's because that's what the Platonists called it, because they, they think it's, it's the source of all being. Um, the unmoved mover of Aristotle... Uh, uh, Plato's the one in Neoplatonism, everything reflects off of that and creates the universe. So a lot of their arguments are going to be derived from Plato, uh, from uh, attributes of the one, and that's who they see as ultimately responsible for all reality. Well, and, and the test, the test of the false idols versus the the living God, it it always shows. He's like these these false gods can't walk. But walking is sequential, one step after another, and it involves having feet. And they'll mock you if you believe that God has a body. And you say, well, isn't Christ bodily resurrected? <laughs> and, well, uh, uh, that's new. Oh, so now he changed? Uh, 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 uh. Yeah, so What's funny is, is, is the test of the, the living God versus the false God, the false God is identified as an unchanging, unmoving unthinking, powerless thing that completely lines up one-to-one -one with this Neoplatonic classical theist view of, of God. Yeah, within the Bible, it mocks, mocks the false gods. It says, they have noses, but they can't smell. 
And then you read Genesis and Abraham sacrifices and God smells the pleasing aroma from, uh, I, I might have just said Abraham, but from uh, Noah's sacrifice right after the flood subsides. And so there's an idea that the sacrifices that we make on earth, like animal sacrifices, that God can smell, experience those fragrances in some respect. And so that that's that's the normative biblical idea of one of the elements of sacrifice. God can experience our sacrifices, even through smell, which the false gods, the idols, cannot. And I, I asked a Calvinist once, can God smell? And it's like, he doesn't have a nose. It's like, well, the Bible says he smells. And so how do you square that with every random thing you just told me that's not in the Bible? I don't remember that Bible verse. God doesn't have a nose. Maybe maybe it's there somewhere. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. And you say, oh, Christ had a body, right? Uh, don't I thought you were a Trinitarian. And the, there's, there's those Calvinists in the know, and there's the Calvinists not in the know. The Calvinists in the know understand that in the hypostatic union, that concept of the Trinity, Jesus Christ's body is not actually God. And so the God part of Jesus is not the body part, and you can't say that the body part is divine. And so they'll try to make this distinction that uh, God doesn't have a nose, God doesn't have a body. Those body parts of Jesus are just just material aspects and not actually God. And the Jesus, the, the God, the Son part of Jesus, that's co-eternal, co-equal, co-simple, having all those other properties with God the Father. And those are identical because, remember, divine simplicity requires that Trinitarianism is not a thing. There's, there's not parts to God. God can't have interrelated elements that are differentiated in any way. And so in that sense, all, all the parts of the Trinity are co-equal, the same thing, identical, can't be distinguished. But there's also this body over here that's the man part that lives in the world. And the Calvinists who are not in the know, they just don't know how to respond. It's like they, they've never like deeply thought about their own theology to figure out, oh, Jesus is God. Jesus has a body. I just claim God doesn't have a body. And it's their mind's blown. Mm -hmm. So, anything else outside of himself um, that he is simple that he's not composed of any type of parts um, uh, and that includes things like um, uh, accidental properties um, yeah so accidental properties are properties that don't have to exist and so like like my skin color that's an accidental property it doesn't I don't have to be a white guy I could be like a black guy or something like that or I have hair. I don't have to have hair. You I could cut it all off. I could tan. <laughs> I I could. I'm a little burnt. I'm I I started peeling a little bit. I got fried by the sun. So, um, my skin color would be an accidental property. It doesn't have to exist. They say all that is God is God. Um, God can't be anything other than what He is. There's no element of God that can change. So if Jesus grows up and learns and grows in favor with God, as the Bible says, all that can't be God. All that's happening to some sort of human material avatar because God doesn't have those types of accidental properties that can be contingent, that can change, that can grow, or is not fated by necessity. And well, so they would that dismiss the growing in favor altogether because that would be related to the Father 
experiencing a change in relation to the sun. So they would say that that's completely ambiguous and nonsensical in, in its, its statement. It has no meaning, no meaning at all. Well, they would say that it applies to the human part of Jesus, which they don't think is the God part. And so that's why they really freak out about the question, was the human part of Jesus God? Was that part, the part of Jesus which is human, was that part God? And they'll freak out because uh, that that exposes what they actually believe if they answer honestly. And they, they almost never do. I've got like maybe two or three Calvinists to answer honestly. Uh, people, th those who actually understand what they're talking about with the hypostatic union. And, and that he is impassable, right? So he is not, he's not moved to emotion. He's timeless, he's spaceless, he's immaterial, right? These are all, when, whenever you hear God described that way, that, that is, uh, that, that's classical theism. The non-classical theist comes along and, and, and typically because they reject simplicity, um, they also start rejecting impassibility. They start rejecting aseity. They start rejecting immutability. Yeah, remember that Bible verse that said, God has no parts and there's nothing that could distinguish any part of God from another part. Uh, he's absolute simplicity, aseity. There's no part of the Bible that says that. What they, what they do is they turn to places like Exodus 3.14 and says, oh, here God says, I am that I am. And what he means is, and then they go into like this paragraph of text that's nowhere in the context and right. not implied by anything. And the whole context is about God's interrelationship with man and leading them out of uh, Egypt, leading leading Israel out of Egypt and saving them and being with, with them and protecting them. And it, it's the context of an argument with with uh, Moses in which he loses the argument, has to appoint a new speaker. That's the context. And they think that's this metaphysical aseity passage to prove all their metaphysics. It's insanity. It just really is. Mm. So it doesn't exist in the Bible. Their simplicity is... Yeah, I mean, it, it, what you do is, is you see that they begin with this classical theist, Neoplatonist philosophical system that they then need to defend because they want to call themselves Bible-believing Christians. So then they go to Scripture and they search and they search and they search and they rip this little piece out and they, you know, they'll paper mache it onto this Neoplatonic wire frame and they'll go and they'll find another verse and they'll, you know, plaster it onto that wire frame and, and they're recreating, they're whittling away, they're getting rid of the God self-revelation of Scripture they don't like. And they're keeping the revelation of, of God, but that they do like, that they can reframe, that they can redefine, that they can make in their own image. And it's this unliving, unthinking thing. It's a, it's a construct that has been carved from the ether of philosophical thought. Now, it doesn't mean that all classical theists aren't Christian. It just means that their view of God isn't derived from Scripture. It's derived from something extra biblical that then points back to Scripture and goes, oh, yeah, we also believe this to an extent. Yeah, so the interesting thing is they're not alone in doing this. So yeah. there were Neoplatonists uh, in, in the first three centuries AD, and they would do this exact thing with Homer. So if you've ever read the Iliad or the Odyssey or watched any movie with uh, Brad Pitt running around stabbing people at Troy or whatever, um, so if you're, you're you are familiar with those stories and how they depict the Greek gods, what the Neoplatonists would do is they'd come to those stories and they would say, oh, this doesn't actually mean what it's saying here. It has a secret other meaning. 
Also, Homer was well-versed in Platonism and understood all these Platonistic concepts and was just writing this way. Now, I look at that, I say, that's completely laughable. It's absolutely ridiculous. And absolutely not was the Homer, Homer's Iliad and Odyssey written with Neoplatonism in mind. Absolutely, it's, it's, it's laughable and ludicrous. But we still have, have the remains of that today within Calvinism. Augustine did it in the first century. All, most of the, the church fathers did similar things. Origen was really bad at uh, spiritualizing texts, but they all did it. The Neoplatonists did it to Homer. The, the church fathers did it to the Bible, and Calvinists do it to the Bible today. Mm -hmm. They look for talking points. They reimagine these talking points to mean their philosophy, and it's all Neoplatonism. Yep. Hey. Once you start rejecting immutability, you start reject. It just entails then you reject timelessness because there is kind of this sequential change. That they do. <laughs> I remember that Bible verse: "God is outside of time, has no befores and afters." And, and a lot, of, a lot of people kind of at the lay way. level, a lot of people at the lay level conflate being atemporal or timeless with eternal. But in the philosophy of time, saying God is timeless or atemporal has specific entailments completely detached from always existing, which is what eternal means. It would mean without beginning or end. You can have eternal operations um, without needing to appeal to timelessness or all temporality. So when you get into like the philosophy of time, and these were some of the questions that I brought up to Tyler during our debate. Um, and, and he just, he struggled and struggled and would name call and obfuscate and run away. But with all temporal, it means... God is absent sequence. He doesn't do one thing, then another. Uh, it means that he lacks temporal location, duration, extension. And this is a question that I raised to one Anthony Rogers, who agreed to debate me before running for the hills. It's, it's a good choice on his part. I, I think so. I mean, I'm not the world's greatest debater, but I don't really have to be on this topic. Right? <laughs> like, like there are much better debaters than me. And the fact that I'm able to chop them down from the knees down is 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 not a, a testament of my strength and abilities. It's a testament of their inabilities and weaknesses. But but with Anthony, he went on the gospel truth, and they were talking about you know all things Calvinism. And I asked him, I said, "Isn't it true that given your commitment to all temporality, that God is atemporal, you literally deny you deny God foreknowing or predestining anything in a literal sense?" And he laughed and called me stupid, or essentially implied that I was stupid, appealed to Tyler Vela's debate with me, and mocked and obfuscated. And after about a five-minute hemming and hawing, goes, yeah, it, it's it's not literal. Uh, we don't believe God actually predestined anything or foreknew anything because he's, he's atemporal and the Bible's clear. <laughs> but he never provided any biblical passages saying it was atemporal. Instead, he would force it into passages where God is just saying, I am. And, you know, he, he the, the thing that's frustrating here is when you get into like Revelation, you know, this is the God who was, who is and who will be or, or is to come. Um, that is completely different. That has a beginning, a here and a later. <laughs> this is not platonic thought. And those those that those words and those concepts and those terms existed at the time of that being written. So if the author of Scripture wanted to say that God is atemporal that he's timeless. He could have done so. Instead, he chose words that completely contradict that. So yeah. I'm post in the sociology group today that 
consistent Calvinists have to deny God predestines anything. They have to deny God foreknows anything because of their commitment to being atemporal. Yeah, that's actually explicit. And I think Calvin explicitly says it. And uh, there, there's other systematic theologies that are Calvinists that explicit, specifically, explicitly say that in a, in a literal sense, God doesn't predestine anything. And so that's interesting. Uh, the Bible does say God inhabits eternity. The problem is that that phrase is applied to man too. It's like one day we will inhabit eternity. And so it, it, the phrases don't mean what they claim. It's just this appeal to, here's a phrase, let me talk about it. And it means my special thing. The Will Duffy debate about timelessness. I got that clip. I took that clip out. I posted that clip. It was so funny. The guy's like, well, see these verses in Revelation? And uh, Will Duffy's like, yeah, but my problem is the verse literally is talking about time-bound things. It, it doesn't say God is timeless. And the guy's like, well, yeah, but these verses work with my theology. He's like, okay, that's that's not the, I'm not, you're trying to provide some sort of evidence that your belief is in the Bible. And instead you're, you're pointing to verses that maybe could, if you look at it the right way, fit your theology. He says, my problem is you have no proof texts. You have nothing to show that your views are biblical. And the guy was kind of dumbfounded. Well, here's here's something else Tyler said in one of his uh, interviews or discussions. I forget what program it was. But he said, everything God does in time is anthropomorphic. So that, that means that everything that God does, like let's just say scripture, everything in scripture about God is an anthropomorphism. It, it lacks any literal correlation. And so, you know, this this then goes, well, how, how do you know that who God is? Well, it goes back to being ineffable. Well, well then why do you have scripture? Well, it, it makes me feel like I'm grounded. I, I just, I wave it around. It's It kind of reminds me of the Pharisees who back in the day would wear scripture, but they would never let it inhabit their hearts. You know, it was it was more of an outward thing. And that's what you see a lot with, with various classical theists is it's about appealing to scripture but not really ever believing it it's about appealing to scripture but never really beginning and ending there all right so i'm going to try to pull up the quote by bavink where bavink literally bavink's like a famous calvinist systematic mm -hmm. theologian that they all love he literally says that there's no technical foreknowledge or predestination one of the two but we'll let him play and talk while i pull that up a god type of primordial time type of thing or, or higher order time, higher register time. Um, and so you, you actually end up having this vision of God, this understanding of God that is, that is entirely different. It's a different concept of God than what right. we as, as historically Orthodox Christians would affirm. And they don't Orthodox. like this. Um, but I, I, I have started just saying, really. All right. You ready for this? This is the yes. And this is in his uh, Reformed Dogmatics, Volume 2. Consequently, strictly speaking, one cannot speak of foreknowledge in the case of God. With him, there are no distinctions of time. He calls the things that are not as if they were and sees what is not as if it already existed. For what is foreknowledge, if not knowledge of future events? But can anything be future to God who surpasses all time? For if God's knowledge includes these very things themselves, they are not future to him, but present. And for this reason, we should no longer speak of God's foreknowledge, but simply of God's knowledge. I think Calvin actually has a passage that says basically the same thing. 
that's like it's foreknowledge to us it might be actually augustine it's foreknowledge in our sense in our human terms but really not not to god it, it's not foreknowledge i'm pretty sure it's augustine i, I don't have the quote offhand i, I uh, can't recall it, it was probably augustine and then calvin probably cited it or referenced it yeah really your concept is just kind of this mega zeus concept right it's it's the, it's this very very so he's doing the uh, Matt Slick thing that uh, Matt Slick's like if if I just call open theists Mormons enough, um, then no one's gonna like open theism or equate open theists with Mormons. And Tyler Vela is is all about this Mega Zeus thing. If I if I say Mega Zeus enough, uh, people are just gonna discount or discredit open theism. Uh, how's that working for you, Tyler Vela? <laughs> yeah, I mean, calling calling the God of the Bible as he revealed himself to be a Hebraic Megazeus should set off alarm bells. Because what he's saying is, is you're reading the scripture and you're believing it. And if, if you actually believe it as it's written, it depicts a Hebraic Megazeus. So he's basically attacking God's self-revelation because again, he, he believes you can't understand any of this. You have to have Neoplatonism and classical theism. And we just appeal to this with those lenses on we don't start there if you do that then you're just like a pagan don't start with don't start with don't start with the bible you you know you're, you're like a, a hebraic pagan you know you're worshiping zeus it's like um when god said this about himself you're you're saying god is describing himself as a mega zeus are you sure you want to go there because uh you're claiming that the bible's true and if that is true you're going to stand before this god who you called uh, Mega Zeus, and you're going to give an account for every idle word. I don't think that's that's too smart, and I don't think God eternally decreed him to <laughs> to insult him uh, to that degree either. So I don't think that's going to work for him when he gets there. But God, didn't you put those words in my mouth? Didn't you give me the desire and the will to call you these things? Uh, the fuck, well. yeah. The funny thing is, there's there's divine warfare. God's fighting other deities or other other divine entities throughout the Bible. There's angels fighting demons. Uh, God is involved in actions, military conquests against other deities. I, I'm thinking, uh, oh man, wh why is it slipping my mind? In which Israel invades Moab, the Moabites, and then there's a divine wrath against the opposing God, which push pushes the Hebrews back. And so Psalms 82, we see this in action in which God has an assembly and he calls together the other gods, which are divine entities that rule over parts of the earth. And he says, you guys are all being incompetent. I'm taking back rulership for myself. And so these, these things exist in the Bible. And to just try to say, oh, let's just ignore everything the Bible says about God and his dealings and how he operates the divine council that's just discredited it and that's just claim our Platonist philosophy trumps all that. And all this is just, that's a massive disservice to the Bible. Yeah. Very powerful, very, very good, very loving. You want, you, you know, take, take Zeus, make him omnipotent and make him not capricious and make him wholly wise. Right. Yeah. And that's their concept Maybe of God, but he's Zeus. finite, he's take changeable, Zeus. he's movable, he's, you know, he's take, take Zeus. And then make it into something that isn't Zeus, and that's why you can call the God of Scripture Hebraic Mega Zeus. So, so there was a push within Hellenism, Greek <laughs> thought, to to change their image of Zeus and to discard the earlier 
legends and descriptions of him within the Iliad and the Odyssey. And so Zeus does go over a grad, does have a gradual makeover within a Hellenistic religion. And so uh, we, we, we should I just at least understand the process of Platonization even affected the Greeks, I guess is my point there. Yeah, I get it. He's, he's reactionary. He learns. He, you know, it's just a mega Zeus concept. Yeah, it's like a Zeus, Zeus 2.0. Yeah. So, see, I, I have this little book out, Street Level. Good thing you're not drinking every time they say Zeus. Because I'm talking about. <laughs> well, uh, I drank it all gone. I must oh, be no. super drunk because it was definitely full and this is definitely alcoholic. And so I'm probably going to the hospital soon because it's 40% alcohol. Oh. And so, if I'm dead by the end of this podcast, that that will that will be a tragedy. Right. <laughs> well, presuppositionalism, and I have this little section called the uniqueness of God, yeah. absolute acting. Say, if he's got a list and check marks next to it, must be legit. Totally so, I, out. <laughs> do, do you know who we, Winky Prattney is? Yeah, I know Winky. Okay, and so like I had one of his books once, and it was just on my, my shelf when I was growing up. And I start reading it, like, let's see what this this idiot says about God. And I'm just reading all these attributes, and he, he's quoting verses. I'm like, this is actually pretty good. This guy's actually knows what he's talking about. And then it's like it turns out he's like an open theist, but actually uh, he talks about God and God's attributes and cites and sources everything that he, he's talking about and referencing. So it's not just like a little checklist of check 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 and when the bible makes checklists it's it's a little bit different remember god is a god who repents is that uh malachi malachi uh, i'll have to pull up up the reference but jonah says i know you're a god who repents and so john jonah's checklist repentance is one of those checks you're not going to find that on a tyler vela malone Oh, no, they, they mock they mock that. And, and what's interesting is, is they'll then run to a scripture passage where he's he, they're, they're saying God isn't going to cave to the pressure of a king. He's king of kings. He's not he's not afraid of you. Like, what do you have over God? He's not a man. He's not dishonest or disloyal. He gave his word. He's going to honor it. And they go, ah, look at that. That proves God is immutable and he he can't change his mind because he's not a man. And it's like. What about these other two, three dozen passages where it explicitly says he does, and you're ignoring the context of these two particular passages? You're eisegeting, and it's like, oh, we don't want to go there. Why are you? Why are you not dealing with the plain meaning of the text? It's like, <laughs> I, I am. I, I just gave you what it says. I even, I even went to the Netzach um, Yisrael uh, Shaker Nacham Adam Nacham, the glory or the splendor of Israel will not repent, for he is not a man that he should repent and it's it's saying in this situation in this situation god's made an edict and he's not changing his mind and they go oh that means one size fits all wooden literalism everything uh god can't change his mind on and uh, it's very inconsistent everything must be literal when it's appropriate for them to dismiss everything being literal it, it's it's so if you actually stop and consider it for a while, it would actually, it would, I'm, I would bet it would get you a migraine. Hey, Drew. Yeah. So this, this is uh, Joel, Joel 213, and it's, it's a different checklist. And you're not going to see some of these things, maybe some of them. He's got like loving, and it's, uh, 
sandwiched between self-existent and uh, immutable. I guess loving it works with those two things, what they mean by those things. Uh, Joel has a different, Joel found in the Bible, this is a biblical book, it has a different list. He says, And turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repents from evil. And so uh, that that's the different checklist. There's a biblical checklist, and then there's a street preacher modern American Calvinist checklist that they're a little bit different, a little bit different. Oh, uh, eternal, immutable, judging, loving, self-contained, self-existent, self-sufficient, and some other things. Yeah. If anyone knows of a, a better list of attributes than Joel within the Bible about God, sometimes the Bible has these lists where it's like, God is this and this and this and this, and all those all those lists tend to look just like the Joel list and never like the street preacher list. But if uh, anyone has better references for a list, a quick two paragraph description that would be useful for me. So if someone can point me that direction. Seems like some of the items on that little list, they would disagree with. They would disagree with almost every of what we historically call the incommunicable attributes of God. The things that are are solely true of God mm -hmm. um, and are not true of humanity. So that that just is, uh, God, God is the only ase being. God is the only being that has no contingency. God is the only simple being. He's the only one that's not composed of any type of parts or, or uh, you know distinctions. Uh, God God is immutable. He's the only being that's unchanging. Right. So you have God. God is the only one that has these incommunicable attributes. Some of the other incommunicable attributes, um, they will. Mm -hmm redefine yeah so ravisari says wait tyler vela hosts a show about being ironic between theological positions with this pedigree of vitriol huh yeah my first interaction with this guy i was invited to one of these websites to talk about the servetus incident and i'm just trying to talk history so i gave a list of like 12 different historical facts and and if you just search my channel for servetus you can find a bunch of different videos talking about it and uh, he said, you're misrepresenting. Everything you're saying is false. It's like, okay, we could go through this one by one. Which statements are false? And uh, he doesn't want to do that. He wants to say, you're just not understanding the context. Okay, what, what did I say that was wrong? He just didn't like me pointing out inconvenient facts. And he thought just glossing it over or just saying, oh, it's, it's all historical or it's all in context. That could just override the points I was making. And so a very dishonest individual, I was kicked and blocked. And so I wasn't able to capture that conversation. So if anyone has that conversation they want to send to me, I would be interested in a, well, in early, a copy. And now this was many years ago. So I may be remembering it slightly um, under a fog, you know how memory is. Yeah. But if, if memory serves me correctly, I was invited to a, a sage group where I believe he was a moderator in. And uh, I actually appealed to him because some of the other moderators were, um, let's just say, disagreeing with some absolute factual statements that I'd made. And I did the same thing. I said, where, where am I wrong here? And they said, if you don't you know, delete it or recant, we're going to, uh, to kick you. And I reached out to him and he only uh, succeeded in exacerbating the issue. But uh, a, a lot of this is they feel like they have, and I think this is probably what vocab is, is doing when he talks about platforming. Um, everybody was, yeah, it was, it was the popular thing to do. Um, but I think this is one of the things vocab is doing when he talks about platforming, they feel that they have to protect the flock 
But at the same time, this is one of the reasons why Christian apologetics, iron sharpening iron, all of this stuff is so essential because for so many years, so I mean, a long time, particular uh, sects, S-E-C-T-S, within Christianity have tried to insulate their group and said, these other guys over here are heretics. We're not going to expose you to their views. We don't want you reconsidering. We don't want to come up with a rebuttal. We don't want anything. We're just going to isolate. And this is one of the reasons why you see uh, such a, a heavy trend, I think, today of people deconstructing and leaving the faith because they grow up in this sheltered where they, the flock has been protected. People aren't wanting to platform different interpretations or views of, of scripture. And so they grow up and they're very isolated and they're, you know, sheltered and they go out into the real world and they go, wait a minute, I have a problem. And they have a crisis of faith because they can't distinguish from their particular theological flavor and salvation itself, their view of God as they were taught versus what the Bible says. And so they throw the whole baby out with the bathwater. Um, and I think what they're trying to do is to protect the body of Christ as they understand it. But what they're actually doing is perpetuating deception and they're putting people at risk. And I'm speaking in broad terms here. Um, it, we need we need to have an ex, a free exchange of, of ideas and dialogue and, and may the best interpretation and the best uh, exegetical understanding of scripture, may, may that win. And I think the truth will set you free. So let's get that iron sharpening iron. But um, I don't think a lot of people want that. I don't. I think. I think they have an existential threat with open theism. Yeah. Because open theism treats the Bible honestly. <laughs> Fine. Right. So. So they're going to say, "Well, we affirm omniscience. It's just dynamic omniscience. Active and energetic. That there is omniscience. to know." Yeah, so God is the living God. Maybe we just use the word living omniscience. Living omniscience, I'm good with that. God <laughs> God has living omniscience. Well, you can't say living because that implies uh, temporality. So he would have to deny that God is living. <laughs> so rhetorically, maybe we should should start saying it's living omniscience because God's the living God. And then they have to fight against like biblical terms, which is really funny. With it. it's, it's just like, how does God know what we need? I say, well, the Spirit communicates this information to them. They don't know. It's like, it's like, did they just skip over this passage? They, they've read Romans eight before. Did they just? Oh, it says a bunch of words. Just keep reading. And it's just, I just skip forward. We'll go to Romans nine. It's like, just call them out on the Bible. It causes all sorts of hilarity. They're reading, you're like, none of this relates to me. Ah, oh, here's a proof text that supports my view. None of this relates to me. Oh, here's an encouraging statement. None of this relates to me. Oh, this helps me condemn my brother. None of this <laughs> relates to me. <clears throat> it's like, okay, start reading Romans 9. Okay, ready, ready. Don't go all the way to the end. Cut off. Nope, don't read the end part. Don't read Paul's conclusion. Oh, back, Quick. Back, back when I was coming out of Calvinism, I was sitting in my Calvinist church and my pastor was reading... And I, I was like, oh, he's about to come up to, you know, they, they did, um, 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 uh, oh, what, what's the term? Expositional preaching. So they go verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And I'm like, oh, we're coming up to a real problematic uh, couple of verses here. It's like three verses. And I'm, I'm really anxious to see what the pastor says. So he gets right up to it, stops, explains these next three verses away without addressing them, and then picks up next into the chapter and keeps on reading. 
<laughs> that is is pretty funny. Petro asks, why use omniscience at all? I think omniscience has some rhetorical effect because people are attracted to the word and they identified the word with God because of the cultures that we've grown up in. And so the Bible will use phrases like God's all knowing and people equate those as the similar or same concepts. And so retaining the word, I, th I think is a good rhetorical move for a lot of modern Christians, but I don't, I don't think it's necessary. It's, it's not like you could a say biblical he has word. living knowledge. You could say he has, you know, living knowledge of all that's knowable. Um, you know, there's, you, at the end of the day, we have to call it something um, so that we can communicate ideas clearly. And I like dynamic because it's active and energetic, but I could easily just call it living omniscience and Tyler would not be able to affirm that. Um, yeah. I think, I think I'm going to think on this, right? Because God made me in his image and I can do that. Uh, I'm going to think on this. I'm going to use some reason and discernment, but I may actually just start referring to it as living omniscience because, uh, at the end of the day, I mean, that's what they hate. They they hate this idea of a living and active God. Uh, they want a concept of pure actuality that doesn't act. Yeah. So remember, he he's listing off his attributes and his attributes is uh, without contingency. Yep. Uh, he's totally a say without any relations. Uh, he's totally simple and impassable. These are not living attributes. Just go grab a King James and uh, do a search on living God or just living and see how many times that refers to God a lot and see how many times simple refers to God. Zero times, zero times. But the future just isn't the type of thing that he can know, right? Because, because, right. because it doesn't our, exist. It doesn't exist yet. It doesn't exist yet. And for, in order for us to have free will choices, we have to have these real it has to be really metaphysically possible for me to choose one way or the other and since in order for me to choose it can't be determined in advance the the future is really open god can't know what i'm going to choose because he, it's not a, it's not a real choice yet and if he knew what i choose then that means it's fixed what i'm going to choose and therefore i'm not free he's arguing right? for fatalism uh, they, he tyler's arguing for fatalism he says that our view is is that god can't know the future so it's 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 God can't know the future. That's our view, but that's really not our view. Our view is that God knows it contingently. God knew that Saul was going to overtake Kela, destroy the city. City was going to hand David over, and David was going to be killed. God knew this contingently because He knew all of the present events as they were. He knew the strength of Saul's army, the weaknesses of the city. He knew the the heart of Saul. He knew the heart of the men of the city, the heart of David. So God knew this future event contingently, not as an existing reality or something that he had decreed uh, in eternity past that it couldn't be changed. But this is the potter at his wheel, actively working to bring about what he wants. And so he goes, hey, David, Saul's coming. He's going to kill you. David David isn't a fatalist like Tyler and just goes, oh, it's settled future. There's nothing I can do. You know, David just goes, all right, well, I'm out of here. Thanks for having me. It's been a lovely time. But uh, there's a man who wants to kill me, so I'm going to leave. And that event never happened. So, like, the Bible depicts God's knowledge of the future as contingent. He has knowledge of possibilities. But they say, well, in order for God to have real knowledge, it has to be settled eternally. And that's just simply begging the question for fatalism. They're not doing any of the heavy lifting to defend that view or to support it. They're just simply begging the question for fatalism. 
and and dismissing the biblical evidence to the contrary. Yeah, you have to watch out for them smuggling in concepts. And so they're going to say, oh, um, God doesn't have knowledge of the future in your view. But what they're when they use the word knowledge, they don't mean what normal people think when they think knowledge. Uh, knowledge is justified true belief. I, I, I said earlier, I'm going to have a cringe cast today on this very topic. Yeah, I knew the future. Does that mean that this is like faded or, or it, it didn't happen? Or it must happen, and and if it didn't happen, and the world ends, or something like that. No, it's just a justified true belief that happens to line up with the things I said before the event happens. Um, they don't actually think that God has justified true belief about anything, because if you remember their definition of omniscience, it's inherent, it's ungenerated, it's uh, co-eternal, co-simple with God. Remember, God doesn't have parts, mm-hmm. and so his the the knowledge. You you described it as God having encyclopedic knowledge, but encyclopedias have different sections and different parts. God's knowledge can't even be parted like that. It's it's like this this one simple whole of existence that reflects all of reality without distinction. And so it's 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 a complicated concept. They they just they fundamentally redefine knowledge and then they try to smuggle their new definition of knowledge into the debate with, without actually defining the terms and words. Well, this, God's, is why, this is why Calvinists love this because it works well with their view of election because in both views, God has eternally known. And like within the classical theist view, God has eternally known all of us, all everything. This is what I try to get into in our debate with the modal collapse where everything becomes necessary. So in Tyler's view, God across all eternity had to know Tyler Vela. Knowledge of Tyler as a being is necessary for God to be God. And so in Calvinism, they say, well, God knows us as elect or, you know, uh, passed over or double predestination, elect under, under wrath. But everything becomes necessary in that view. And you and I would be necessary beings in that view that we must obtain or God fails to be God. And this is why Tyler Vela is always talking about, you know, well, God thought of me from eternity. <laughs> Jesus was thinking of me, Tyler Vela on the cross. You know, that that one time uh, the neighbor kid showed me a magazine that I shouldn't be looking at when I was in seventh grade. Jesus was dying for that sin specifically because he knew that sin eternally on the cross. And so what it does is it it becomes extremely man-centered to where Tyler is essential to the divine being divine. And it it really, it's tragic, but they don't really see it that way. They don't want to see it that way. Um, But I, I, my view is, is that God knows those things that um, uh, like, let's say with, with uh, like Pharaoh, he knew the present intentions and character of Pharaoh's heart. So he knew what Pharaoh was going to do in a particular circumstance. He was grounding his knowledge of Pharaoh in Pharaoh. He didn't, he didn't in eternity know Pharaoh as an existing being. He didn't know in eternity that Pharaoh must exist and or he won't be God. But in that moment, the living God in that present moment knew Pharaoh as Pharaoh was and was grounding his knowledge of Pharaoh in Pharaoh. And this isn't a very difficult concept. But it's so diametrically opposed to their view of them being necessary for God to be God that they reject it. 
Yeah, so it's interesting in the Pharaoh instance, God says, I know Pharaoh is like this, and he describes Pharaoh. And so this is the things I'm going to do to him because of it. Yeah. It, it's not like, oh, I eternally predestined all these things, and he has no choice. And it's like, I know his character, and so here's what I'm doing as a result. And in, in one sense, open theists are the most consistent libertarian free will advocates, right? This just... This just is a, a normal, uh, they just lean into the objection that a lot of us give to, to libertarians and say, right. well, if you're a libertarian, then then you've completely removed the ground for God's knowledge. You should be an open theist. An open theist is going to just agree with that assessment. They're just going to say, well, yes, then open theism is true. Whereas most libertarians are going to see that, that that conclusion is a bridge too far. Yeah, so no, notice they said our argument, our appeal to emotions our, our, our logical fallacy, um, it, it does, doesn't work on open theists. We, we could try to shame other people into not believing beliefs because of the consequences of those beliefs, but it fails with open theists. They're, they're, they're willfully admitting to using moralistic fallacies as rhetorical devices. That's what just happened. Well, and, and if you listen well, yeah. to how they define what an open theist is, it generally doesn't apply to most open theists because what they do is they're straw manning the position, you know, like they do with dynamic. They'll say, oh, it means not. Uh, so when I when I'm engaging with a lot of these reformed people, Augustinians, I'll say, well, define what you what you mean by open theist. And in almost every scenario, I go, well, that doesn't line up with my view. I'm not I'm by your definition. I'm not an open theist. But then you and I can have a conversation where we're actually speaking using the same terms and terminology. And we're saying, yeah, we're not fatalists. You know, we don't believe God has eternally decreed all things or that the future is an existing reality where Marty McFly can go and visit. Um, you know, then you and I are able to, to speak to one another on a similar level. But for them, it's this straw man. Um, and uh, and so they're able, I think because they have such a large platform, not not Tyler or Vocab, but I'm talking about the reform crowd in general. You know, they don't want to allow dissenting opinions um, and they're able to suppress that. But, you know, the Internet is getting this sort of stuff out and people are listening to it and they're going, you know, I was scared. They, they scared me. They used they used scary language and bad terms. I had to go and Google and they made you guys sound horrible. But <laughs> y'all actually believe the Bible. And, you know, this view really does seem to portray God as the. The, the most biblically accurate. And I mean, I've had so many people message me and go, my dad and I used to fight over this, or I was struggling in my faith, or, you know, I had this, this view of God, and then I encountered what you were saying, and all of a sudden God is far better, and I understand scripture far more, and the gospel has so much more impact on me, and my need for God is so much more heightened, and this is such a, a good thing. And I'm like, well, that's that's God. God is God is good, and the gospel is good news, and this is a, a good view. It's not a scary view, but if it's challenging your your worldview, if it's challenging your pre, uh, preconceived commitments, your philosophical commitments, it, it can scare your worldview. But for Christians who desire the truth, this is good news. This is exciting. This is yeah. There's a living, powerful, active, relational, loving God who desires mercy more than wrath. And this isn't just metaphorical, but this is a God who genuinely sees himself as the father on the, the front porch waiting for the prodigal to return home because he loves us. Like, that's great news. 
Put the good news back in the gospel. They would balk at that. However, and I'm not trying to throw shade. I'm not. I'm not into like sly talk and slick talk like that. Like like the way some people do it on the internet with sub disses and all. I don't know. I mean, I guess every now and then. they're red pilling their audience in their comments. Is this is all new to me? Open theism. Great. Uh, he he's unintentionally giving a platform to open theism. Fantastic. And then maybe I get into that, but I try not to be that way. My point is, yeah. I mean, I've seen. Leighton Flowers have open theists. Uh, is he platforming them? It dun, looks like. Dun, dun. But, but so, Soteriology 101, I, I thought he would kind of affirm like a classic Wesleyan Arminian Soteriology, but I'm going to fast forward a little bit. By the yeah. This supernatural act of God upon the unbeliever. They deny that. That just is what makes them. Uh, Basically, right now, he's just Arminians arguing are. for Augustinian. So, provisionism is, is its own thing. Um, it's 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 his own view. It just is kind of. But, see, but Wesley did affirm provisional grace. Wesley affirmed provenient grace. Oh oh, so wait, I'm oh, so oh yeah, so oh wow, okay, so see, I could see someone making that mistake. Uh, I'm jumping forward grace. again. If you're if you're a Catholic, it's going to be the removal of the stain of original sin at baptism. Um, you know, if you're if you're kind of an evangelical Arminian, it's going to be this this general fog of illumination and the conviction of sin across all humanity. If you're a provisionist, you deny provenient grace. There's no, there's no special work of the Holy spirit upon the unbeliever to change any part of their nature to make faith possible. Faith is possible for the unbeliever in virtue of them being a human. Right there's there's so okay. the, the initial step of faith and so, so the idea in Calvinism is that we have like a metaphysical code within us and once Adam sins there's a switch in the code where it's where it's capable of good yes or no and that that metaphysical s switch flips to no and so even someone doing good out on their own without God maybe it's a some person who's never heard of God, doesn't know God, and they protect their child during a storm or during a war or something like that, that, that itself is not a good act. That's just human nature. It, it's, it's, it's in effect evil because they don't actually have that metaphysical switch that allows them to do good for good's sake. And I think Calvin talks about these types of hypotheticals. I'd, I'd have to pull up the reference. But it's not me just making up things. This is this is what they believe. There's a metaphysical switch within us, and they're complaining that provisionists provisionists do not believe that this metaphysical switch exists. Rather they're, than they're saying they're saying, oh, how dare you not affirm an Augustinian anthropology of the nature of man as such that he is created under the wrath of God and completely unable to respond to the gospel? How dare you think that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. You need this thing called regeneration, pre-faith, so that people can hear the gospel and respond to it. So their view is anti-gospel. Yeah, I, I think also it reveals that they don't believe that human beings are actually volitional. They see us as, as uh, mechanical organisms that are the sum of our parts and uh, We'll, we'll always spit out the same answers to the same equations. The same inputs will always create the same outputs. And this is why you probably often hear the Calvinists say, well, if God knows people's hearts, then why can't he just see 
um, let's say Abraham's heart, to know that Abraham, under these conditions, would not sacrifice his son as if the heart contains code that God could directly look at and peer into to actually figure that out before the actual event happens. They see us as a sum of our parts. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I, d- I don't think that th- that's the case. I think a lot of times people are growing and learning and they don't know their own capabilities. They You don't know what a person's going to do in a situation until you actually put that situation to them. Well, people, it, was, it was like when, when uh, Anthony Rogers quoted... Um, Oh gosh, um, one of the one of the the latter church fathers, and he said, "If you say anything happens by chance, you're ignorant and foolish." And it's like, um, remember that time Jesus <laughs> said something happened by chance? Were, were you guys talking about him or or just us? <laughs> like, you know. So you'll get caught up on this where it's like we're speaking rhetoric, we're speaking rhetoric, and then they don't realize that that they have aimed that squarely at, at scripture and God's revelation. Um, I, I think a lot of this, they, they don't realize what they're doing, but, but they do view man as input output, you know, basic. Um, if then, you know, I went to uh, like science lab and I think seventh or eighth grade and we had to learn basic programming. And I remember these if then codes. So they see us as these if then creatures. So, you know, if God regenerates us, then, then we will, respond oh Zerati says if sin nature can be passed down from adam person to person why can't the ability to believe the gospel be passed down from person to person i think their idea is that there's a metaphysical override that has to be a manual input from god for each individual that believes and so that if two believers have a kid then that metaphysical input doesn't carry down and it has to be manually applied again I, th- I think it's all code to them. The whole yeah. world is code. Nothing happens by chance. It's all, all, all symbols. Faith. Nothing special has to happen for you to have your first step of faith. On, I mean, on, the gospel. On, on hearing the gospel. Provisionism says you know, that falling the condition not special was the death of special. Christ. That salvation was provided okay. for all or the, or the mechanism or the means for salvation was provided for all humanity. That's where provision, he made provision for salvation. For I did not fully, uh, as you can tell, sometimes I play. All right, skip it forward again. So we'll so give them a good, uh, I'm serious. I'm not joking. Four minutes. Static union historically is that the natures don't impact each other. Okay. Right. So the, they, I I think he's talking about uh, Trinity stuff now. Yeah, so we'll back up. Here. Yeah. We'll back up a minute and see if that's when they start talking about this. If if I was you know still still a ruling elder of church, we may bar the table from someone. You might still go under church discipline. It's still. It's oh, this is where he says he doesn't consider open um, theists as an unbeliever. Open. That's okay. The feelings mutual. <laughs> Theism, I think, is just flat out heresy. I I, I wouldn't consider an open theist a brother. Um, if you believe the Bible, straight to hell. Open theism because of the way that they view God. It really messes also with their view of the Trinity, um, and their view of the hypostatic union. Oh boy! Right? Because Uh-oh. they want to say, "Well, God is time." So he- here's one of the things he was talking earlier about: open theism growing and developing. And it wasn't. I I've never seen any other open theist talk about the hypostatic union as it's actually understood classically, 
except for myself. And so I've been introducing a classical understanding of hypostatic union uh, about how the body of Jesus is not God and has to be separated. And these arguments are circling around and hitting these Calvinists and they don't know what to do. Well, even, and, even there though, Chris, even there though, that's still within the classical framework. And this is what I tried to explain to Tyler during our debate with, with God taking on a human nature that is not God. It's still an accidental property that he had. He did not have previously. Yeah. It dictates a change relationally. It would be like my glasses, right? But that dictates that God cannot be atemporal. So even within a classical view of the, of the hypostatic union where the two natures don't impact one, there's still an accidental uh, or property uh, relation there uh, that, that does determine and does demonstrate that, that God is temporal. So I, I don't even see within the classical view how they defend that. Now, they're, they're going to have to argue for a divide that that becoming flesh doesn't actually refer to an accidental property applied to God. And yeah. so God can't become flesh. And that has to be some sort of language that means something else, that uh, there's a body which is now associated with the divine, but doesn't actually change to the divine. No, no real association. Because then you get into accidental property. So they have this man, Christ, who claimed to be divine, but really truly wasn't. And so you get into this antichrist sort of a view in order to protect this classical view of the two natures not impacting one another. You have to have a man who, who claimed to be divine who truly wasn't. And that, that gets very dangerous. Yeah. And so I, I think it's fantastic that these elements of open theism are being explored, are being brought to the forefront, and are confronting these people about their 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 Platonistic beliefs about how God works and operates, and they don't know how to push back. They don't know how to argue this. And what they have to do is what they did to you, is uh, they, they gaslight, they mock, and then they finally admit. Yeah, that was a good time. I'm bound. Right, so, 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 and they try to prove that God can change by saying, look, the hypostatic union shows right that God can yeah, change yeah. because God took on a human nature. Jesus was sans human nature, and then he took on a human nature. And so that shows that God can change. Do you almost get yeah. into some quasi-modalism there? Yeah. So, so hey, I point quasi-modalism. Quasi-modal. Nice. So I point out that, well, the hypostatic union historically is that the natures don't impact each other. Right. So they, they, they are they are two natures that are kept in this hypostasis and they don't alter the other nature. I mean, that's, that's creedal. They don't add that's, or detract I mean, from one not, another, but I'm they still have a relation. Have a crypto Catholic. I'm just I do believe that the creeds are a guide like, you know, these They're guides, the just like Tyler yep. said, not some infallible thing. But it's like when you're messing around with that, you know, you just I think you should do it. You should take it into consideration. It should be very serious yeah. if you're kind of messing around with these guardrails of, uh, I mean, again, I'm doing this because it's a book. So I am, it's shame, shameless plug. In the back of this book, Tyler, in the back of my new little book, I know you're not here to talk about my book, so I'm not going to do it long, but I have appendices and I include in the back. And uh Oh, he's waving his book around. What did I miss? So, so essentially what he's trying to argue again is that, we were talking about a hard form or a, a consistent 
classical view where the hypostatic union, the two natures do not add or detract from one another, but he's not addressing the argument. He's ignoring the point of contention that God took on a relational change with the human nature that he did not have previously. Because unless you want to say that that human aspect of Christ was eternal, but again, with their view of the modal collapse and divine simplicity, maybe maybe that's where they ultimately end up having to go to defend that claim. Uh, they just accept that everything is necessary, but they haven't done that yet. I, I don't know how they're going to actually answer that issue. <laughs> yeah, Petro asks, what is a nature supposed to be anyways? And so um, it's it's interesting when Paul within the Bible talks about natures, he there's like sin natures and there's flesh natures and spirit natures. And he seems to use the word in a sense that these are just normal attributes that you describe to something we'd categorize as this object. And so it's it, a lot of it, if we're using the terms like accidental, a lot of those properties seem accidental. He'd probably say there's a cat nature and a dog nature and the cat nature includes having four legs, stuff like that. Because when he's talking about natures and bodies in the spirit, he talks about how the spiritual nature has a property in which it doesn't decay when we are raised with spiritual natures. And so it's Paul's use of it is different than a lot of what theologians will use when they use the word. They'll use it as some sort of like metaphysical specification that is assigned this particular label and is incompatible and there's no other lap with other other labels of nature. It's it's real interesting our our kind of disconnect in how we use the words versus how the Bible uses the same type of words. Yeah, you'll, you'll see sometimes they'll they'll switch it up and they'll they'll conflate nature and person as well. Um, it's really interesting to see when that happens. Yeah. So and street level apologetics. That should have been my screenshot. Him doing the little finger thing with the smile. I missed it. <laughs> the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedon Creed, and the Athanasian Creed, as well yeah. as the New Hampshire Confession of Faith. So, like, you know, those those matter. You start what you're saying. You're starting to mess around with that. So, my goodness, I think this is helpful for the audience. That's why, I, hey, I told you guys, everybody. Tyler's one of the guys that I call when I have a question. He he's been one of the guys. Um, I used to call Jeff Crane a lot. When I had questions about Judaism, Hebrew. My brothers went to be with the Lord. I still miss him every day. Uh, but Tyler is still here. Whenever he's stuck in traffic, traffic, you know, I give him a call, and I appreciate that. So this yeah. is helpful. Um, in in your uh, debate with McGrew, oh okay, I, he's talking about you. I just Here we like go. he was trying to redefine everything to make it more palatable, yeah. and it redefine. I understand if you think the position is biblical, we can all be off or deceived or whatever the case is. Examples. I just felt. I don't know how to say it. There's almost a sense of uncomfortability. Like I know enough about these issues. Why are you re Why are you redefining these things? Oh, Tyler and I uh, both affirm omniscience. His is his. Why don't you just accept what we say about these words? If the if the Bible uses the word predestination, it means our thing. And if you say it means something else, ugh, that means why are you redefining words? Predestination, we both, obvious. We both affirm that God knows all that's logically possible to know. Tyler, Tyler's view is that God has static omniscience and that everything that's possible to know is eternally knowable. My view is dynamic, that God has active and energetic, or we've coined the term tonight, living omniscience, living knowledge, that he knows the future contingently. 
So this is a debate over fatalism, not just of man, but of God versus the living and free God of Scripture. So why why draw that out in your debate, Warren? Why would, you like, even, why would you even do that? Like, why? Well, because I want the audience vocab. I want the audience to be aware that we're using the same term, the same terminology, but underneath that, which I said in our debate, are presuppositions that often go ignored or overlooked, leading to confusion. So I actually addressed the elephant in the room in my opening statement so the audience could see the real point of contention. You have a fatalist with Tyler Vela debating a non-fatalist with Warren McGrew. Now, I'm not the greatest debater in the room, but I did have enough common sense to draw out that distinction and say, here's the reason. We both believe God knows all that's knowable, but Tyler is arguing for a static God and fatalism. I'm arguing for a living God who knows the future contingently. Yeah, they, they want... They want to poison the well. They want to say, oh, you don't believe in omniscience. Oh, that's so well, bad. And, and if, you, if you rewind it and you listen to him, it's almost like vocab was mad at me because I made sense. Yes, yes, that's what they do. And so Calvinists have a long history of hijacking words and redefining words to mean the exact opposite of what these words mean. Like, so if if God in Acts has a pre or foreknowledge plan, a foreknowledge plan of the crucifixion, they'll say, oh, this means some sort of timeless decree in the nether world. But where, where you look at that word and how it's used, it typically means whatever the event that it's talking about, that's when the event happened. And so when the Jews predestined an answer to Jesus about a question, that means they specified something at the time of the event that we're talking about. And so when, G, when God has a predetermined plan, that means God has a plan at the time in which Jesus is crucified. So it's, it's a hijacking of words. Words need to mean their specific things because if those words don't mean those specific things, their their arguments fall apart. They don't show us from context. They, they don't make cases, biblical cases, why those words in context mean their specific thing. And a lot of their arguments, when they do try, are counterproductive. It says predestination here, and a phrase over here is uh, from the foundation of the world or something like that. Well, if it, if the word automatically needed that, it means that it wouldn't have that subsequent clause to, to describe when. Well, and from, right? from the founding, founding also means the falling, the descending. Yeah. So and you could go back to Genesis 3 and you see God says, because you've done this, he will bruise your heel and you'll crush his head. It, it's responsive. You know, but they can't have that. This has to be eternal pre-creation, all of that. But I wanted to address what Irenic asked when he said, what does it mean to say God knows something contingently? It means, um, oh, what was it? Oh, in that debate, Vela wanted to take the negative position and not defend his at all. Absolutely. He That's bragged, funny. He bragged. He said, I can just make up claims that I don't even believe, and I don't even have to defend them. Like, that was Tyler's strategy going into this. He's like, I can say anything I want. I don't even okay. have to believe it. I don't have to defend it. So this is a good point towards my contention that he might be slightly, his mental capacity might be very limited. I don't think he understands um, that that that's you you can't make just this negative case in in this particular circumstance. And the Bible's default opinion is actually open theism, so it doesn't help him out at all. And he he thought this was like a genius thing that he's doing, a genius strategy. Oh, I don't even have to do this. Okay, all right. 
I, I don't think it played out very well for him. I it don't was think a it played dichotomy. out. God is either living and active or static. It's a true dichotomy. It, it, there's not there's not a third option here. It, it's like, and you don't want to defend your position, but you have to in order to defend mine. That's what happens in a true dichotomy. And and Tyler was just like, you're 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 ugly, and your mom dresses you funny, and I'm not going to engage. Hebrew Megazeus, Pelagian heretic, and even brought up PSA in the debate to try and poison the well. Like he was just lobbing grenades and running. Yeah, it was, but, it's, uh, I do want to address what what uh, Irenic meant when he asked about knowing something contingently. I mean, God knows it as a possibility, not as a settled, fixed reality that it will certainly obtain. But He knows the possibility. He know, he, he knows that with certainty, meaning there is no ambiguity. He knows this is truly possible. It has a probability greater than zero percent and less than one hundred percent. So it is a possibility. If it has a probability of 0%, it's an impossibility. If it has a probability of 100%, it's a certainty. God knows all three. So in my view, God knows impossibility. You know, that that's never going to happen. He knows unless he does something, fish are not going to climb trees, right? He knows that as an impossibility. He knows uh, square circles as an impossible concept, right? He has that realm of knowledge. He knew that it was um, uh, possible um that i would you know drink water and diet coke tonight like there's unless he decreed it that was a possibility and then if he does decree something and he intends to bring it about he knows it as a certainty but he knows all three of those so when i'm saying he knows something contingently i'm talking about the realm of possible not something that is inevitable certain or impossible all right uh this is just not dynamic like mine is yeah. Yeah. And, and this is big. so he's going to want to fall on when we define omnipotence, for example, we say God can do any logically possible thing. Right. God can't make a square circle. But they limit it, though. And so even what happens if you start adding all these negative attributes together, you start coming into conflict. So if, if God's omnipotent, can God change? Oh, no, no, that that would uh, defy his character. Can God uh, forget something, choose not to remember something, or learn a new thing. Those are all things we could do. Oh no, that would that would defy his nature. Oh, can God sin? Oh no, absolutely not. That would defy his nature. And so even that they understand that their infinite attributes have limitations that they that they have to reconcile in some way. Their their attributes aren't actually unlimited because they're contradictory. They're they're self defeating. Hmm. That's fine with it. They're going to say, well, the same thing happens with omniscience, right? God right. can't know unknowable things, yeah. which I'm going to agree with. God can't know what a square circle is. He can know that you can't have a square circle, but God can't know what a square circle so is. So a square circle, everybody, by definition, is an unknowable thing in a sense of because it cannot exist. So because God it's incoherent. It's not a thing. Yeah. There's no concept. It's to just it, two right? words put together. Yeah. God, not, God, God can't that. know an instantiation of a married bachelor, yeah. right? So I'm fine with that. So he's going to say, okay, but the future is like that. So we're going to say God can know all possible things. Mary Bachelor's the future. We're trying to put the future under that category of unknowable right, things. Right. Yeah. So he's going to say, okay, well, God's, so God's knowledge is dynamic. It's active. It's living. So it grows. It's dynamic because it grows because he learns new things. Yeah. Did he just use no, the word living? Out of stasis. Dun, dun, dun. You're static. You're boring old God who doesn't change. They they don't like the living God. So did he, did did I catch that correctly? Uh, He just just argued 
He's going to say that God has living omniscience. I, I think he literally used the word. If if I'm okay, I can't even think. Right. Yeah. For, forget forget the fact that God not changing is like the basis that he gives us for trusting in his promises. But whatever. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's the basis. Uh, uh, you could trust me because I'm metaphysically unable to vary in any instance at any point. At, 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 what? It's, it's insanity, though, Chris. When did God give that promise? He never did, according to their view, because he's atemporal. So trust in a promise that was never given. Yeah, yeah. I would I would like to see what reference they're using for that one. So so he's gonna say, okay, well, so we have this dynamic omniscience because we believe that God's omniscience can change it. And and as a classical theist, I'm gonna say, well, no, God, I mean So the interesting thing is Malachi three, which says, uh, I the Lord change not, therefore you're not destroyed. That's not about you could trust me because I don't change. It's about it's actually about if you read the context. I'm so mad at you people. I should just kill all of you people, but I'm going to remain true to my promise I gave you in the past. And so then he follows that up with return to me and then I'm going to return to you. So it's it's all about relationship. It's all about staying true to promises. It's not about metaphysical abstract. Oh, you're in the ether. Oh, I can't change because I got this metaphysically simple nature in which I'm pure actuality with no potency. Potency. Guess what? Potency. They don't believe God has potency. He doesn't. They don't think he has ability to perform and do things because that involves potentiality. And notice how those words sound alike: potency and potentiality. God doesn't have potency. He's not omnipotent in Calvinism. Oh, well, so fantastic! Throughout Scripture, God links His power with His activity. Like He says, "Look, I can demonstrate this. I can do something." And they rob God of action. Yeah, he he doesn't have potency. God God knows all things in the future. There's no there's no inherent contradiction to the future being knowable, right? It's not like a married bachelor. Future knowable. That's not. Petro says, uh, "Don't Molinus think God's knowledge is absolutely certain once he's decided which possible world to create." Well, they say there's not a moment in which he makes that decision. That that decision's like an eternal moment. That's within a logical framework, but not within a temporal framework. And so at no point uh, does God actually make a decision and then gain knowledge from that decision. It's all like an eternal, absolute, simple type event going well, on there. I was talking, I was talking with uh, Tim Stratton, and I said, you know, I think you guys actually begin with an open theistic premise. And he's like, go on. You know, and I said, well, not temporal moment, but logical moment in the life of God. There was a logical moment prior to actualizing this world where he was free to create any possible world. Thus, there was a logical moment in the life of God where the future was not yet determined, but open. So I said, you begin, even with logical moments, you still begin as an open theist. But then there's a this, this logical moment of the decree where you then become deterministic. And in my, my position, I, I see that as, as fatalistic. Yeah. But I was like, so you begin with an open theistic premise, but then you become determinist. And he's like, you know, and I don't want to put words in his mouth, but my takeaway, I'll put it this way. My takeaway from that conversation was he's like, yeah, I could I could see that argument having merit. Um, you know, again, I'm not putting words in his mouth. This is a while ago. They, they can't respond saw, to it, though. Uh, yeah, he saw he saw that. Yes, in a logical moment sense, in that view, there is a time logically 
where God sees the future as open and undetermined. And so it begins with an open premise that then collapses into determinism. That's my criticism being filtered through his response. That's not a verbatim. I, I like I like Tim. I don't want to put words in his mouth, but that was that was pretty much the the takeaway there. Yeah, if uh, he, vocab puts his PayPal over all over the screen, so if you PayPal him, he could buy more Marvel posters, posters and comic books for his background. Not a you, you have to do way more spade work to show that's any type of contradiction, and so I'm going to look at it and say, okay, well, I mean, God, God just knows the future. You're redefining omniscience. And you're just saying, well, it, you know, we affirm our missions. It's just dynamic. And so the example I give is like that. That's like a modalist saying, well, I'm a Trinitarian. I just I'm just the a dynamic example. Trinitarian. Right. Because. Right. Yeah. So what distinguishes their view from modalism? Honestly, if uh, Jesus, the human, is not uh, the, the second person of the Trinity, they, they, they literally believe that. What distinguishes them from a modalist? Well, but the thing is, is again, he's using the term dynamic outside of its definition. He's already in this this video. He already said dynamic means active. And I think he said energetic. I know he said living. Right. So he, he recognizes dynamic means living and active. But when he applies it to the Trinity, he tries to say it means not. So if he's going to be consistent it's not that we're saying a dynamic trinity means not triune. It would just mean a living and active trinity. So what's the what's the error here that Tyler perceives that he's having to shuffle and redefine these terms? It's the fact that God is living. This is something that causes him great distress in his theological presuppositional commitment. He does not like this idea of a living and active God. So he has to redefine these terms to say he is not living and active. He is not living and actively triune. He's not living and actively omniscient. He is not living and active anything. So this is the issue that he has. And, and it's got to get under his skin because he spills a lot of ink on these issues. It's eating him up in, inside and internally. It's fantastic. Because it's it's just, it's a it's a changing trinity. Is well, then you're just not a Trinitarian. This right, is yeah. not what we mean by it. You're redefining the terms and totally muddying the waters. Because if you think about it, heretics always want to do oh, this because heretics. they don't want to be seen as heretics. This is why Jehovah's Witnesses want to say, we're Christians too. Look, we believe in modern We're the Christians. So I, th I think like the one time that the Bible actually just defines heretical uh, anti-faith affirming beliefs is to deny that Jesus came in the flesh, that God came in the flesh. And so that's, that's literally their position and they're projecting against open theists who might say, well, maybe Jesus is God. <laughs> well, what's, what's interesting too was like um, Anthony Rogers did a, a video mocking uh, any sort of open non-fatalistic position. And he quoted early church fathers and quoted passages of scripture. I did a two-part response on that. And you'll see they're saying, they'll, they'll call... In this video, they'll, they'll appeal to historic Orthodox Christian view of omniscience. And you'll see every, I think, I think let's just let's back up. 95% of the ECF proof text that Rogers quoted affirmed an open dynamic view of God and refuted his view of a fatalistic, closed, settled future. 
So if anybody's interested in, in what the early church had to say, according to Anthony Rogers, uh, it doesn't defend Tyler Vela, Vocab Malone, or Rogers' view, although they claim it does. Yeah, so I'll, I'll talk about that quickly with my studies. So there, there is a gradual shift in perceptions of who God is within the church. And so all, all the attributes that we currently associate with God, all the simplicity and pure actuality and things like that, they, they are slowly phased in over a period of time until you accumulate in maybe someone like Origen and then Augustine after him. But uh, you, you do see... You do see that view represented in someone like Philo of Alexandria before then. But so it's pretty easy for Calvinists to go back to during the development and point to people like Justin Martyr to try to argue for their favorite attributes at the time and say, hey, see, they believe this thing that Calvinists believe. Yeah, but holistically, if you look at the whole picture of what they're teaching about God, it doesn't fit the Calvinistic view. And there's open theistic elements that you're still going to find because the the Platonism wasn't solidified to the extent it was later or right, at use, different areas. They use terms like all seeing, he searches, he discerns. And these are in the proof text that they used or Rogers used to defend this view of a platonic view of God. But discerning is something that a static platonic God doesn't do. Searching something a static platonic God doesn't do. All seeing is something that a, a platonic God doesn't do. Um, so yeah, they're they're desperately trying to establish some sort of of roots. Now, is there is there an ancestry there? Sure, absolutely. It did evolve as, as you're noting, but it's not the hard form we have today was not uh, in existence early on in Christianity. Yeah. So even if you look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, they had some fatalistic views and the fatalistic views are shared by Josephus, who is a common Pharisee, that God has plans for the universe and tries to get things done. I think one of the examples Josephus gives is that God has like a plan for a guy's death. And so if the guy decides to be a good guy, um, he dies by an accident, but if the guy decides to be a bad guy, he's killed in like a street brawl. So the, the fatalism wasn't like deterministic fatalism. It was fatalism towards specific objectives, which had multiple routes of getting to there. Although God was in overall control of history. So God, God would be seen more uh, at the micromanaging level, but it was kind of like active and dynamic and allowed different possibilities. And so it, it wasn't until a lot later that you get this Calvinistic idea that God controls our secret intentions of our hearts to his very end, which people don't have any free will whatsoever. There's no leeway within God's plans. And so you do see that gradual development. And I think Josephus, I think I did a whole podcast on Josephus. I need to make sure I actually did. Uh, but yeah. but he, he represents probably the average Jew, the average Pharisee of that time. And when he's talking about the Pharisees believe in fate, it's it's not the same thing as the Calvinistic fatalism. There, there's an element of free choice and free will. Right? Um, you know, Hebrew Israelites. They're, they we're, actually, we're, a lot of them Christians. say they're the true Christians too, yeah. Right? Uh, so they, they want to they want to say, hey, we're we're one we're one at the table too. We we can use the same words as you. Don't you see we use the same words? And they slide we can make the exact same argument about Vela and Vocab, no one trying to claim they're at the table using the same words. 
Yeah, um, so the the thing they didn't do, they didn't point to a word in the Bible and then define that word out of the context of the Bible. They're quibbling over definitions of words and and that are not found in the Bible. And what's the purpose of words to communicate something of value? And so you're you're telling them when I use this word, this is what I mean, and they're like, "Oh, you can't say that word means that." Well, that that's not a biblical question. That's just a basic rule of conversing with them that you're laying out groundwork so that they understand what you're saying. And so the, it's it's really disingenuous. It's 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 act of a semantics. A semantics is when you pedally focus on words rather than on intellectual concepts. Them for two thousand years. Oh boy. Okay. Uh, yeah. Some of this, it's almost like winning by defining things a certain way. It's like where the, uh, I call it lexical fiat. You're trying to make, you're trying to win your <laughs> yeah, debate. By, by claiming by, omniscience by is defined. defined as knowing the future is settled. You've that is. yourself on your own petard there, vocab and, and Vela. You're, you're doing exactly what you're accusing us of doing. Right. They're, they're not trying to win the arguments by, debating concepts and ideas they want to do it by definition and so they're re rejecting your definition they're they're doing what you they accuse you of yep. just normal hypocrisy i think i cover this in my video calvinists always lie this is one of their things that they often do they just accuse everyone else of what they themselves are guilty of finding your position into truth almost like you know a, a hardcore naturalist or something well believing that god believing that any so i think it's actually an existential threat to them to allow that different definition of omniscience because remember they don't read the bible for what the bible says about god to get their attributes about god from the bible and so they start with the presupposition that god meets all these attributes and one of these words on the list is omniscience and so it causes them a great deal of concern if you say this word could mean something different because that undermines the lens by which they read the bible mm-hmm Anyone created anything is not by definition science, therefore it can't be in the discussion. Or uh, we know historically miracles don't happen. There's no such thing as a miracle, so it can't be considered part of history. Now let's have the discussion, you know, right. that kind of thing. I'm not right. saying they're doing exactly the same thing, but I see a similarity. Uh, I'm surprised at how many questions and comments we have already. So I'm, I wasn't planning on doing this. I didn't realize you're going to be... Uh, I didn't realize you're gonna, people are going to be so interested in one of them. So let me throw some of this up at you. The Heavy Heart Show. I'm uh -oh. learning about this in school. Hyped to hear from you all. We'll give this podcast another uh, 15 minutes of our time, not their time. But it looks like they're just going to jump into questions here. Yeah. So uh, maybe we could find a good question. Let's see. What's, what's this one? Um, just somebody giving them praise. Giving them praise. Tyler Vela did well in the dynamic omniscience debate. Okay. Well, he admitted God is unthinking. Um, uh, and it caused him great consternation. <laughs> caused him a, a lot of uh, personal. He's, yeah. Congratulations on denying that God has perfect cognition. That's, <laughs> I stand corrected. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So uh, we got a comment from Eugene that they're, they're uh, questioning. And Eugene's over here in our comments over here yeah, as well. Yeah. So we'll see what they say about it, Eugene here. The, yeah, Eugene, the objection that he's why do I have to It's what? I think you I think Eugene at the very beginning, I think he, he said that he was an open theist. Yeah. Yeah. Thing earlier. That's how I feel. I feel better thinking God can respond to my prayers and things can change. How would you respond to him in a pastoral manner? 
Yeah, uh, I mean, or, I would point out and say you don't need open theism for that, right? <laughs> so, so, so think about it. The, 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 uh, you don't need open theism for God to respond to prayer. And so if God's responding to elements outside God, is God still a say? Does God still have pure actuality? And the answer is no. God can't have those types of relationships with the world in which his actions or thoughts or ideas or anything about him has a dependency on stuff outside himself. So God cannot, remember we talked about foreknowledge and predestination. God cannot have predestination. God cannot have foreknowledge and God cannot respond in classical theism. They have to claim that it's just this human language that doesn't accurately describe what God does and thinks. But you can trick yourself into feeling good about that. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, you know, oh yeah, fatalism. Now hold on a second. Let me let me tell you about this thing called fatalism. Like it, it'll it'll help you have better thinking about God yeah. and and your prayers because you know he's actually the one praying the prayer for you. He's eternally determined <laughs> you to pray. And he's determined if he's going to listen to that prayer or not. So you can I mean now if you're nervous determined that you'd be worried about that or if you have peace you're breaking up a little bit or i'm breaking up one of the two the, the objection that he's he's trying to say is okay well if god knows all things why do i have to pray right why why do as is warren frozen for everyone else i have to pray for something you know for for um you know for for favor in 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 the eyes of someone in an interview to get a job why do i have to pray for that god already knows whether i'm going to get it or not get it it's fixed what's the purpose of my prayer right so so he's going to say yeah i i think i i really think that my prayer matters and will change things right in brackets will change what god knows or well he didn't know he'll learn the outcome right he has to act to try to achieve it too Everyone who's a, who's a classical, everyone who isn't an open theist is going to say, that's not how prayer works, right? We're, right. we're going to say prayer, even if God knows the outcome, right? Your prayer, your praying for something is the mechanism by which God brings it about, right? So to, you, to use a... Yeah, like a, lot, a lot of times in prayer within the Bible, God does things that he doesn't plan on doing things that he doesn't think is in the best interest of history for the sake of the person praying. Like, uh, for example, Moses, he thought it'd be better to kill all of Israel and then make a new Israel through Moses, and Moses talks him out of it. And so the prayer there is answered, but it's not what God thinks is going to be best for history. Uh, God says to, is it Ezekiel? He says, oh, oh, go burn and burn human dung to cook your food. And he says, oh, God... I don't want to do that. That that's not kosher. And then God says, "Okay, we'll change that for you, and uh, we'll make it cow dung instead." So a lot of times, it's not the prayers not functioning like they're describing. It's not this eternal plan that's playing out, and we're just a cog in it. Oftentimes, God goes for the favor of the person and in disfavor of His plans, what He wants to happen, because God cares about people. I think Warren's back with us. I am back. My internet dropped out. Yes. Yes. And so the idea in prayer within the Bible is sometimes God responds to prayer in ways that God doesn't want for the sake of the person praying. God will forego his own plans, his, his own decisions 
because he cares about our input. That's the biblical picture. And their picture of prayer is we're just cogs in the wheel. We're aspects of this divine plan. And uh, we need to step back and not think of ourselves as affecting God. So I got a comment here to skip forward to skip forward to the question on heresy, which I guess we'll try to go find that. It's going to be somewhere. Okay. Uh, where does the damnable heresy versus non-damnable heresy distinction come from? Daniel Alexander. For some reason, I feel like I know that name. I think he posts on like Facebook, all his like model level pictures. He looks like one of those Chad memes. And so <laughs> I, I think, I think that's who that is. Have an authoritative tradition, um, but that doesn't mean that we can't have a reasonable warrant for our certain views. Right. So we don't have to have Cartesian certainty. Um, but here, here, uh, you know, I would say, okay, well there, you know, there's, there's heresies that someone can believe, but it doesn't necessarily mean that someone's not saved. There are other heresies that if you that if you affirm certain views, you're just you're not Christian in any sense of the term. Um, you know, someone someone who's going to say, well, you know, Jesus isn't God, right? It's not just that they get, you know, because because you can you can almost forgive someone or understand how someone. Yeah, Tyler, do you, Tyler Tyler Vela, do you think Jesus is God? Tyler, do you? Ooh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> I mean, when you get into Orthodox Christology, it gets complicated. How many wills are there? How are the minds of God? How do the natures relate to each other? Right. In kind of working out those secondary implications, you can get into heretical grounds, but everyone's trying to say, okay, Jesus is God and Jesus is human. They're just trying to work out how that happens. And sometimes they'll veer into heresy. But the person who says, well, Jesus isn't God. Right. He's he's the archangel Michael or he's created or he's just a, a good a good guy and a prophet. Um, he, you know, he's how about a parrot creature that in no way is combined with God, no way dependent, has no dependencies with God and is completely just some sort of uh, marionette to enact God's eternal will. How about that belief, Tyler, Tyler Vela is is does that does that is that included with the clay, uh, denying Christ as God? How? Because that's his belief. Mm. Tyler Vela believes Christ is a marionette. He's adopted, you know, like the Unitarians, for example. You're that's just that's damnable heresy in the sense that you're just you're not even you're you're not even trying to be a Christian at that like in the Orthodox sense. You're just you're just so So one thing that I it concerns me with these people who are talking about these damnable heresies and like ideas of trinity and they're including the ideas of trinity and damnable heresies um the bible doesn't specifically lay out all these things if you ask people where the bible talks about trinity it's usually they're stringing together like 20 different verses in 20 diverse passages and then adding them up and then drawing conclusions from them and saying oh if people didn't independently come to this idea uh then they're going to hell most of the church, the layman, the laity throughout history have not believed in the technical definitions of Trinity. No, they were damn most of them were modalists. Yeah, that, that throughout throughout all of history, these people don't. He's 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 basically damning to hell in his mind a vast majority of all Christians to ever exist, a first century A.D.s onwards. The, the see, normal I'm, person. I'm, a, I'm a Trinitarian, right? I hold to the monarchy of the father view. And when I hear other Trinitarians come in and they're like, if you don't affirm the Trinity, 
you're not a Christian. This is salvific. Like there were a couple of Calvinists on um, the complete sinner's guide. This is probably eight months ago. And I went on, I just asked them in the, in the live chat. I said, well, which model of the Trinity? If it's salvific, we need to know which model. And they're like, what do you mean, which model? Like the Trinity. <laughs> and I'm like, no, like the Western model, the Eastern model, there's different understandings of how the Trinity works. If this is salvific, give us the model. Like we need, we need to be saved. So which model? Oh, no, any Trinity will do. You know, it's like, well, okay, so, but as, as long as you're affirming the Trinity, then you're saved. Yeah. Well, you just condemned some of the men that helped form the Nicene Creed because they were modalists at that creed. You're, con you're, you're condemning the majority of the laity, you know, and so what they do is they elevate these doctrines that are intended to kind of help us understand how some of these things may be working that seem to be consistent with scripture, that seem to be sound, and they're elevating these to being salvific. But one of the things that scripture says is on that day when God judges the, the hearts of men, their conscience will either condemn or excuse them. So God's going to look at them and go, oh, this is this is what they were thinking. They're they're excused. <laughs> like He's a good and just God. And he's going to be like, hey, these guys over here, I know what you were thinking. You're condemned. You know, so that's where you're going to get a lot of people going. But Lord, Lord, didn't we do these things in your name? And he knows he knows their conscience. He's grounding his knowledge in the hearts and character of men. That's how he judges us, not based off of some eternal pre-creation decree, but in the character that we've developed. Yeah, and and judgment and punishment in the Bible typically is um, contingent on how much you know and how, how responsible you are with that information. And so Calvinists don't like this concept of God treating people on different standards based on individual conditions, uh, God treating us as individuals because that violates how the metaphysics they think are at operation in the world. So if a baby doesn't pass an age of innocence or dies in utero, they want it judged by the same standard as someone who has lived for 30, 40 years. And it's, it's that's, that's just not the biblical case. God God spares Nineveh. He says, these guys don't know any better. They don't know their left from the right hand. Why am I going to judge them as harshly as you want? They, they're ignorant. We need to treat people based on where they are, their life circumstances. And so conditional punishment based on culpability is, is ingrained within the Bible, throughout the Bible. And uh, it has to be denied in Calvinism. Yep. So far outside that you're 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 not even considered a, a, a brother at that point i think with damnable heresy we're recognizing the seriousness of the error to the point of denial of the gospel whereas if someone says heresy is a distinction to damnable heresy you know what i think this is is uh we don't want to address this view we don't want to even let people think about this view or think about the arguments and so we existentially need this to be heresy to get people from to not look into this and consider this as an alternative to our own view. I think this is actually the driving reason for this push to call open theism heresy is to try to discredit it before it can actually be heard out. I don't think they have a principled reason. If, if, I mean, if it, if it was, if it was truly diametrically opposed to scripture, you would come in and go, this is, this is the biblical area where it disagrees. Here's another biblical area where it disagrees. Here's another area where it's in contradiction to the scripture. Here's another area where it's in contradiction to the scripture. We, we haven't gotten that. 
we've been we've been we've been given gaslighting. We've been given name calling. We've been griped at for actually trying to be clear with our definitions and terms. Where's the substance? There is none. All right, fantastic. We're we're almost getting to two twenty. I think that's what we called for the cutoff. And so we'll kind of end there. I, I don't know if I'm going to go back and watch. The, maybe maybe if I'm doing something else like mowing or something, maybe I'll listen to the rest of this. But um, I don't find Tyler Vela very persuasive. I don't find him as an intellectual genius. I just I don't put very much credit in his output. I, I, I'd probably much rather listen to someone like James White than Tyler Vela. And that is a put down. <laughs> But uh, um, I, d I don't think we've s seen them define or actually criticize open theism to the point where they're calling it damnable heresy. This whole overview of open theism and not including an open theist to talk about it. It's I mean, I, I don't know what they're doing with this podcast. I don't know where it's going and what they're informing of what information. I don't know what information transfer has occurred here between them and their podcast listeners. So any comments or, or ideas about this? Um, you know, uh, they're throwing shade our way and there's going to be some people that just go, well, it's heresy. Well, what is it? Like, and they're going to start looking into it. Like we see a comment right here. Somebody said, uh, the main reason I looked into this was because of this sort of stuff. And so I think you're going to see uh, the more they continue to to cry heresy, more people are going to be like, well, if it is, I need to study it so I can argue against it. And I think that's where we win because when people start studying um, what's going on and the arguments that we're making, people come back and they're like, that actually makes a lot of sense, but it's heresy. So it scares me. So I'm not going to accept it just yet. I'm going to keep studying. And then a few weeks, a few months, they come back and they're like, yeah, okay, this makes sense. It's not heresy. But yeah, it's, it's, it's this fear. But I think I think you're seeing people that really care about truth looking into it and, and they come back and, and realize, you know, oh, actually, this makes sense. Where there's freedom of speech, where there's honest dialogue, where people can push back and uh, actually explain their own beliefs, open theism wins in those realms. That's why censorship is at the top of their priority list. They want censorship. They want ostracization. They want uh, open theism to be equated with heresy such that there's not this exchange of dialogue. And so we, we should feel good as the persecuted open theists because we have truth on our side. Um, we, we don't have to go through these, these extremely caustic and uh, anti-intellectual ways or strategies in order to prop up our system. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, um, it's funny. I mean, at, at the end of the day, some of the arguments are just really, uh, if, 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 if people's understanding and relationship with God wasn't on the line, we could all just kind of laugh at this. But the, the sad thing is, is that we're arguing that these things really matter. And they're arguing these things have been eternally destined and will occur no matter what. So, but yet they're the ones right raising the big stink about it. So they cannot live consistent within their own claims. Reality is such that they cannot operate consistently without defaulting to our view. So I think at the end of the day, everything that they're saying is a testament that our position is sound and correct. Yeah. So I, I, I would, 
as you say, caution people, because it, within the Bible, God has a name. God is a person. And you don't get the excuse of, oh, when I was worshiping Baal, I was just worshiping Yahweh by a different name. God is a specific person in the Bible. And so I, I don't think that's going to be a very good excuse on the day of judgment that, uh, oh, I was just worshiping you by another name. God takes a lot of these things very personally. Mm-hmm. And uh, he takes Job's friends very seriously and even threatens to kill Job's friends for the wrong speak about God uttered by Job's friends. And so it, contingent on the Bible being true, uh, a lot of these people are in a lot of danger. No, that's true. I mean, it, I, I see I see this whole view of, of Calvinism determinism as one of the weeds in the parable of the sower. It comes in and it chokes the life out of the, the seed that the sower planted. And if we're not careful, it does that to our relationship and our walk with God because we start to think, well, if everything is faded, then what good is it? If everything is determined, then it's going to be no matter what. And uh, that leads to uh, lessening a fear of sin and condoning it. And uh, it's just, it's not healthy all the way around for the life of the believer. The prayer at church for the guy with cancer or or something similar to cancer. And the person's like, Lord, please heal this. But we know if you don't, that's within your will not to do that. It's like, oh, don't lie. Oh, no. What are you doing here? What are you doing? Those types Mm -hmm. of prayers is is the end result of this type of theology. Yeah, it's hopelessness. It's bleak. It's hopelessness. There is no good news. And at the heart of Christianity is, is hope. At the heart of Christianity is good news. At the heart of Christianity is the way, the truth, and the life. God who became man, the living God. You know, it, it's just, um, we need to save that for another episode, though. I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, we'll cut off there. Any uh, questions or comments, put that down below. Oh, I forgot to mention, I need to start mentioning that if, if you have read my book on Amazon, leave a review because... Um, that's a nice thing to do, and uh, it increases exposure. So if you you like that type of thing, leave a review. But uh, just start a thread on the God is Open Facebook group. Thank you for watching. Anything you want to plug, Warren? You want to plug your T-shirt? That's your that's your oh, store. Yeah, I mean, I've got I've got some merch over at Idol Killer. But I would just say if you guys haven't checked out any of the videos over there, uh, go over there watch our stuff. We've got a wide range of uh, content various styles it's just whatever kind of strikes my fancy for the day we could have a two minute animated video we could have a four hour long q a where i'm talking about everything but the topic Uh, (laughs) we'll have interviews and guests and um i'm not really super active right there uh right now i'm trying to put out about one video a month is what i'm trying to do uh, while i'm focusing on uh just my business things are going well here but uh, if you guys have an idea for a something you'd like me to do, just drop it in a comment over there and I'll, I'll do my best to make a note and get around to it. Well, thanks for coming on the program today, Warren. Uh, we will be talking later, I'm sure. Absolutely. Appreciate you.